Moto One Podcast Network. You're listening to Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast. The podcast that's kind of like a bad rash. We come back every week no matter how hard you try to stop us. Join our supporters by heading over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing to find out more. You can find us on every single social media outlet in the entire universe, even ones that haven't been invented yet. And now, let's talk about all things two-wheeled, except for bicycles and trikes. Well, let's talk about them, too. cutting out uh. all right everybody oh what's going on oh oh check check one two nine four seven two there we go check check okay i might be cutting out i something's going on here with the audio hey everybody this is junk fourth t tabergagons that's not my real name that's what i'll call myself today um hey i'm gonna tell you something uh, let me let me do it in stereo. Oh, hey everybody, this is junk. Let me do it in stereo. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, I have two microphones here up to my face. One here and one here. I'm thinking which one I like better. This one makes me sound kind of idiotic, and this one makes me sound bad ass. So maybe that's what the. Uh, there we go. Maybe that's what the problem is. Anyway, listen, everybody. I just want to say hi. Welcome to Creative Writing. I wasn't here last week. I don't know if you noticed. Nobody seemed to care. Um, but old Junkie Turbogongs did not release a show. Last week, we were on the uh, Nokomoto podcast. So there you go. Um, what am I trying to say here to myself and to everybody listening? Well, uh, first thing I want to say is I hope everyone's been having a wonderful week, motor-related or not. What? Oh, no. Check, 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 check. Says I'm still here. Okay, one, two, nine, seven. Check, 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 check. Hey, everybody, I am getting some... Something's happening here. It says Reaper's blown up on me. This used to happen with my old uh, audio program. Not with this very, very fine one that I pay for now. So I don't know what's happening, but... Check, check, check. Yeah, coming in loud and clear, baby. Coming in loud and clear, baby. Yeah, I like this mic better. All right. Yeah, I'm going to double check this audio in the end, but uh, uh, let me just hold this. Let me hold both of these mics here. I feel like the president. I have 19 mics in my face. And these plosives are going to kill you guys, so let me do this. All right. Well, make things not so crazy. Let me just start saying that I've had a very productive week, very productive last three weeks. Um, Wiggins and I are going to be up chatting in a little bit. Uh, And you're going to hear... We're going to yap a little bit about some stuff. But I did want to talk about last week. uh, We got into, like, some racing stuff with Nokomoto. And... uh, the boys read the uh, AFT flat track rules, 
And Wiggs was kind of going off his anecdotal um, uh, previous history. And none of us covered the, the thing that the fans asked about, which is the flywheels <laughs> and all that great jazz. Um, so maybe we'll get into that later because I have uh, my own opinions about that. And, oh, God, I'm going to start over. All right, everybody. Junk is back in the house. I had to make some minor audio adjustments. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to turn this actually up a little bit. Yeah, okay. There we go. Yeah, okay. All right. Everything sounds good now. So it, it, it seems like what? It's been a little bit since Junk's been in the studio, huh? Maybe? <laughs> so maybe it has. Um, it's been a long time since I talked, that's for sure. And uh, I did want to say that um, I've been doing a lot of stuff lately at work. And uh, we'll get into that in a sec. Before we get into that, let me just say the views and opinions of the participants of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast are those of the participants and do not reflect the policy, position, or opinions of Creative Writing, the Moto One Podcast Network, or any of our affiliates. And any opinion is the respect of participants and is not intended to malign anyone or anything, even Subaru drivers, although they could eat a bowl of dicks. Uh, this show is sponsored by our Patreons, our Patreons, meaning our patrons, uh, on Patreon. So uh, I'd like to give a big shout out, especially in these times when I know uh, I, I'm not 100% sure how everybody's doing that are our patrons. Um, for the most part, I, I keep, <sighs> excuse me, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. I probably shouldn't be recording right now, but hey, this what, it is what it is. Um, but anyway, I've been keeping touch and tabs with a lot of our patrons and uh, making sure everything's going good and that they're still thriving and being alive because that's what you know that's what we all want here. Um, and I have to say, I, I don't do this very often. I usually say thanks to our Patreon supporters or thanks to our patrons, but I'm going to call them out by name in alphabetical order. So Ziegler, Ariana, no, just kidding. <laughs> And do exactly what I said I wasn't going to do. Um, yeah, let's call them out here. And, and just, I want to say thanks to these guys and gals because they uh, are the ones that are helping put out this show every week, even if it doesn't come out every week. They allow me to, you know, hook up with people and put it out when I can. Last week, we didn't have a show just simply because we did like a five hour show with Nokomoto. Every time we record with Nokomoto, it's a shit show and it goes a long time. And uh, it's like 12 o'clock midnight by when we're signing off. Um, and so I know Wiggins hasn't had a whole heck of a lot of time lately. And he hasn't been doing anything motorcycle related. I've been busy out the wazoo only doing motorcycle stuff. So busy that I barely had time to squeeze in a, a podcast with Nokomoto, let alone one for creative writing. So uh, I do appreciate the folks that uh, help us make this show. And uh, I think as busy as I am, I would, I would like to fulfill uh, their, you know, they pledge money to us every month. And so I would like to put out four shows, five shows a month, however, however many weeks end up being in that month. So these guys and gals help us make it happen. And we have Chris, who is our newest uh, patron supporter. And I would like to say, Chris, you still have some stuff coming. We used to have an old Chris. Old Chris is done and gone. He's got his own show now called So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle. And I think he still does uh, side shows with Loud Pipes. I haven't listened to those shows in quite a while. But I do tune in 
now and then when I have some time, some free time, I'll binge listen. So not it's different Chris. That was old Chris, Chris Geis. This is new Chris, no nitrous Chris. He finally, he's been a long time partner of the show. He was one of our very first uh, OG listeners from Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and now he's a patron. And I'm very, very proud of that, as is Mr. Chad, uh, who's also been a longtime uh, Patreon supporter. Uh, we have Jerry. We have Phil, who is also pretty new. Corey, uh, Danger Dan, uh, Chuck, Matt, Narissa, Mike, who is also pretty pretty new, um, Ray, and then the OGs, the double OGs that told me to uh, start a Patreon um, account, Paul and Lance up in Canada. Um, I think we had... hmm. I think we had we used to have uh, Chris Geis, like I mentioned, and we used to have uh, the gentleman in Maine, um, Rob, for a while. And I think we had somebody named Molly, just for like I think she was um, she was a Patreon supporter just long enough to get a sticker, and then she bounced. But we still were, we still um, appreciate it. Ray um, actually has some uh, listener email that he sent us this week, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But. And Danger Dan, he's been supporting us forever. Um, and he has his Danger Dan's Talk Shop, I believe, is his podcast. Like I said, I don't listen to every single motorcycle podcast. There's like too many of them to do that nowadays. But thank you, Dan, for supporting us. Um, I'll have to check out your show uh, sometime. Um, um, so thanks, everybody, for your continued support. And uh, helping us keep the show afloat. You guys literally are, are helping us to expand. I've been helping some other shows get off the ground over the last couple, uh, few, well, few months now. And so um, Phil said that he didn't know that Moto Twins was out and in the wind. I think I told our patrons about it a long time ago uh, in like some patron-only episode that I floated out there. Uh, but yeah, we, that's one of our new podcasts on the Moto One Podcast Network. And, um, there's another one. If it's not out yet, it's coming out. I'm just, I've helped these guys get like set up and, and, uh, welcome them to the network and they're putting them out. So I don't know when they're all going to come out. I don't know when Moto Twins, if it's officially live yet or not, but, um, I think it is. (sighs) I could use a nap right now. If you could use a nap too, go ahead and take one. Push pause. Go take a nap and come back. I've been wanting to nap a lot lately. I've been, I just been working so much. I can't tell you. Ugh, it's like I'm, it's like I need some sleep. <laughs> and I just don't, there's not enough hours in the day for even sleep. Dog, what did I do with my coffee? Oh, my dog took my coffee. She drank it just now. Um, so on last week's show. And uh, on previous Nokomoto shows, they talked about this this concept that they thought of called legacy fraud. And I want to talk a little bit a little bit about legacy fraud. Um, it was a term coined by our buddies over at Nokomoto Podcast, and it's the reason why some people have a hard time getting behind brands. Uh, for instance, they can't stand the Indian came back backed by Polaris. They would rather have seen it, I guess, just be Victory uh, and Bramo. You know, Bramo was bought by Polaris and was called the Victory Impulse for a little bit and, and then died with Victory. So I'm surprised Indian hasn't come out with an electric bike. 
Uh, they're probably seeing if the live wire fails or not. It's also what happened with Triumph. Triumphs are all made overseas now. None of them are made in the UK anymore, I don't believe, except for maybe the 675 that is um, raced in Moto2. Or the, um, the 765, I'm sorry, not 675, the 765 that is raced in Moto2. Those may be the... And, and then uh, some custom Triumph, like special... Like a, if you if you think of like a Harley Davidson CVO, I think Triumph Factory Customs or whatever the heck they're called, maybe still manufactured in England, and that's it. Everything else is made uh, in Thailand, I believe. And Thailand has a, some pretty good um, some pretty good uh, manufacturing and stuff, and it doesn't mean that it's still not Triumph, but. Triumph already wasn't the Triumph of like the 1970s. Well, you know, Triumph started in 1901 uh, when Indian did and several other brands. Like, I don't know, uh, there's a whole ton of them like uh, that I can't think of right now. But I have this whole book of classic motorcycles. The people that were bicycle and wagon builders started building motorcycles uh, as like a replacement for the horse. Um, so... Yeah, a lot of people started in 1901. I just can't think of all of them off the top of my head right now. And uh, Triumph ended like in the 60s, I want to say, as we knew them. Came back in the 70s or 80s and has already kind of like gone undergone another change. So, I mean, what is legacy fraud? Triumph technically, technically isn't the same Triumph that it used to be. Um, and Norton, same thing. Norton went out of business and came back and now has gone and was poorly managed and has gone out of business again. Uh, the Ariel Atom, which is a little car, uh, we all know the Ariel motorcycles, like the Ariel Red Hunter and the Ariel um, Black Shadow or something like that. Am I thinking of the Vincent? What was the famous aerial? Was there an aerial black shadow? I don't remember, but there was there was some really cool aerial motorcycles and I think three-wheeled cars, you know, back in the day. And the guy that bought aerial or bought the uh the rights to the name made the aerial Adam. So I'm just wondering, <clears throat> you know, not to keep going on about what who used to be motorcycles and who isn't. I'm just saying that a lot of people have uh have a hard time accepting the return of some brands. They find it hard to swallow, most notably Norton in the UK, because it was such a pride. Uh, when you think of a Norton Commando and you think of a uh, uh, Trident um, or a... What was the other one when they used to do the Norton? So Trident was a, um, a Triumph and a... Uh, God dang! It, I can't even think straight right now. Why am I recording a podcast like in the middle of the middle of the night? Um, but they had the Tridents, and then they had the Norton slash Triumph, a Trorton, I don't know, a Nortumph. But they also had Nortons that would cross over with other stuff too. So um, there was a rich uh, customizing that went out across in the Speed Wars in, in England back in the '60s, where they would throw some. You know, a Norton featherbed frame with like a Triumph in it. Um, how come I can't think of what a fucking Trident is? I'm I'm just spacing right now. Uh, but anyways, Norton made some really good bikes. My friends got some really cool Norton Commandos. And when you think of that, you think of like the cool, fast Harley Killer. You know, Norton was known as Harley, Harley Killer. Um, 
And now Norton is just making like V4 super bikes that are all chrome. They're like the DeLorean. Uh, if DeLorean met Britain, uh, that's basically what Norton was. And then they were just like poorly managed. And just like, just like Buell, uh, when a racer tries to run a company, it's very, very hard, right? Um, and so I think people see when brands come back, they see failure as imminent, you know, and they're already jaded by what they're, they're going to just going to assume is like a dishonest milking of the brand's reputation for ill-gotten gain, right? In this already plastic and cheaply cobbled together dystopian society of today, where everything, uh, you know, you make a you bring back a uh, toy from the seventies and it's like all plastic now when it used to be all metal, you know, whatever, you know, stuff like that. I just, I feel like people just expect everything to be cheap nowadays and you can't make anything good for a decent price point nowadays. And I just feel like everybody already expects everything to fail. And when you bring it back, it's not the real thing anymore. My question too comes with what does make a brand? Um, I was thinking about Rock-Ons the other day. You can call them Rokons. I'm going to call them Rock-Ons um, because Ollie Swenson or whatever the hell the salesman's name, Ola Larson, Ola Larson I think was his name, who bought the, uh, the Nesbit motorcycle from the Nesbit company. He was their number one salesman. He bought the motorcycles from the Nesbits or Nethercuts. I forget what the hell their name was. I think it was Nethercut. Um, and he said, Hey, I'm your number one salesman. I want to take the company over, move it to New Hampshire or freaking, I don't know, somewhere like that, Connecticut. I have no idea. He, uh, he had a ski resort called On the Rocks. And so he wanted his motorcycle company to kind of reflect that. So he called it Rock On. So that's where Rock Ons come from. Roke, and so a lot of people call them Roke On. They think they're made in Russia. They have been, they were designed here by a crazy man in San Bernardino of all places this crazy guy that you know in the in the 50s and 60s was like a uh, ever since the 40s was just like an entrepreneur crazy inventor guy and he's the one that invented the two-wheel drive um, motorcycle and sold it the rights or whatever manufactured it for the nethercuts who moved production over to like the west side of LA in Silmar or something like that. And then when Ola Larson bought it, he took it to Connecticut or New Hampshire or some crazy crap like that. And I believe that it's still in New Hampshire today. But that's a brand that's always been produced here in the United States and has always remained true to form, but has changed uh, names from Nethercut to Rock On. And has only changed a couple owners. I think there's only been two owners since Ola Larson. He died, so I mean, he couldn't own the company anymore. So is it the chain of custody, or is it the constant production that makes a motorcycle a motorcycle? Because if you think of like Bimota, if Bimota came back, would you be like, that's not Bimota? Because Bimota stopped and started a thousand times, depending on who they were partnering with, right? Same thing with um Several companies, several companies will lie dormant and come back. Indian is what everybody seems to have uh, a hard time with right now in the states. You know, well, Nokomoto boys and Wiggins at least they just don't like it. It's not Indian, man. It's Polaris. Well, what makes it Polaris? 
The same thing that makes, you know, what makes Ducati Ducati? Ducati was bought and sold. Hell, Harley Davidson owned Ducati, right? So I wanted to talk about what makes a motorcycle brand. And I'm going to use one of my favorite old brands as an example. It's a little bit obscure. It's not quite like Hodaka, but it's it, it's in that realm. I want to talk about Kajiva. Um, if you've never heard of Kajiva, it's they're similar to Ducati. They're similar to every other uh, European manufacturer out there. There was this thing in 1940s. I believe it started in 41 and it ended like in 45 or 46 called World War II. And... Um, it started even before that, like in the late 30s, but the actual war didn't start until the 40s. So in the 30s, people were ramping up, and it was a shitty time in Europe, and there was a lot of people coming to power in weird places. The socialists and communists were fighting in um, Russia, and I think Stalin was trying to get rid of them. And the Nazi party came to power, and somebody sent them over to uh, Germany and in and Hitler wanted him out. And so all this turmoil started and eventually led to what was called World War II. And brands like Ducati, who were Italian, if you know who Benito Mussolini is, you know that he liked, um, he would got in bed with the Germans, right? And uh, he was a crazy dictator, as was Hitler. So they had this great uh, Axis power and they were taking over Europe together, right? So Ducati made radios, and that's what they were using to send all the little bad messages during World War II for the Axis powers. So guess whose factory got bombed? That's right, Ducati. Um, And so after the war, Ducati's like, listen, we are going to make motorcycles because people need to get around for real cheap nowadays now that our entire (coughs) region, not just our country, but the entire European landscape has been bombed to shit and you know there's not a whole lot of no lot not a whole lot of good uh, stuff remaining we're rebuilding and everybody owes people stuff for this and that um by everybody owes people stuff this and that i'll tell you right now i believe bsa and harley davidson got a piece of dkw is that the name of that German company? There was like a little German two-stroke company that I believe made the uh, two-stroke rockets um, that the Germans were using, and um, like the V2 or some shit like that. And uh, that company also made motorbikes, and as part of um, war reparations, Harley and BSA did not uh, split up the company, but they got the rights to some of their patents and stuff like that so harley started making two strokes of course we know aramaki and all that stuff but there's another little company or you know a lot of little companies didn't start out as motorcycle companies till after this shit happened till after the war and it's because uh they were doing stuff before before that and so after the war a lot of people started, you know, considering motorcycles and things like that. And a lot of motorcycle companies that were making motorbikes got bombed to shit because they were giving motorbikes to the bad, the ba- who we consider the baddies, and we were the goodies. So our motorcycle companies won, their motorcycle companies lost, and uh, we've kind of moved on from there. So um, Kajiva was one of these com- companies that didn't really do anything like Ducati's. They started out... Uh, similarly though, they weren't, they weren't making 
to to my knowledge, they didn't come around till the 1950s, so well after the war. So it's not like they were making stuff for uh, for the war effort or anything like that. But they were a they made metal components, so they were like a uh, some sort of like manufacturing company in the 50s. I believe in actually in 1950 they started. So similar to Ducati, similar to. Shit, even Honda. Wasn't Honda making motors for somebody else until he's like, I want to make motorbikes and cars for myself, right? I think Honda was making like piston rings or some shit for some company. Um, So, but just like everybody else that starts out, they all started in in another industry first, right? And so Kajiva is no different. They started out, like I said, as some sort of like metal component makers. Who know? I don't know exactly what they made components for. I just know that they were like a uh, like a uh, production little fabrication shop making making stuff. And right around 1978, they turned to motorcycles. If you know what happened in the 70s with motorcycles, you'll know that that's when uh, Europe brought motocross to the States. We had scrambles like in the 50s and 60s and um, and early 70s, and motocross got brought over right around that time. Late or, well, mid, like early to mid-70s, we, it, we quit calling them scrambles because Europe was calling it motocross, and uh, they weren't saying it like that at all, but that's how I'm going to say it. Um so anyway, they brought motocross over. And so Kajiva was like, listen, man, let's get into some motorcycles. So the son, I believe, um, turned to motorcycles, 1978. Great year to get into motorcycles. The CB was already out. Freaking 78 was the year that heavy big bikes started to come out. And we're getting, we're getting moving away from 250, 125s, 250s, 350s, even 500s that were like, that was a cruiser back then. And all of a sudden, the big boy, the CB750 and the Z1 comes out, right? Um, and so 78 is the year that things start to uh, rock it up. Um, I believe the uh, Commando was out a few years before that as a 750. So 750s and 1000s start becoming uh, the, the, the thing. And the rise of the superbikes begins and the UJMs for that matter. So what a perfect time to get into motorcycling. Uh, motocross has just taken off in the la- or has come to the States and has taken off. So there's a new market opening up overseas for these guys. Um, and Kajiva stands for uh, just like a lot of – there's a lot of uh, portmanteaus. I believe Moto Guzzi was one. Um, and Kajiva's one. There's there's quite a few. Hodaka, Pabatko, Boltaco, um, well, taco maybe not so much, but but all these companies are sort of, sort of like portmanteaus of um, something to do with either the person's name or like the uh, the people's and, and the founders' initials and all stuff like that. So, um, I think Bimota was like that too. So, to make a long story short, Kajiva was uh, built by the Castiglione family in uh, Varese which is some sort of like manufacturing municipality in Italy from what I've come to understand about it. Um, So the Castiglione family, uh, founded by Giovanni Castiglione in Varese, so that's how you get it. Ca is Castiglione, the G-I is Giovanni, and the V-A is Varese. So Castiglione, Giovanni, Varese. That's uh, Kajiva. 
And uh, yeah, they um, they bought this is this is funny in '78. So I was telling you that Harley Davidson had a little thing in World War II where they got some of the rights from um, DKW. Is that? A, I swear it was DKW. I can't remember 100 what the name of the German company was, but um, they they manufactured little little two stroke bikes and stuff like that. And Harley got a part of them, and then maybe as part of. Uh, Maybe they also got part of Aramaki. I, I know they owned Aramaki, and I don't know if it was it was a legit buyout or if it was also um, like how they got DKW. If it was also part of like a war uh, thing, you know, because Italy. So, but um, Harley did own uh, had Aramaki in the seventies, um, and they even had a little Hummers, which I think the Hummer was their DKW based bike. And then the Harley Davidson, excuse me, uh, Turismos, like the Turismo Veloce and the Sprint and all that stuff, those were the Air Maki. Uh, and they just took it and rebranded it with Harley Davidson on the side, right? Um, and so the funny thing is, is that when um, Kajiva was going into business, they went in and they bought uh, the Varese factory from AMF who in 1969 AMF bought Harley. So now who own, now is Harley Davidson Harley going back to what makes a brand? Like we we should get into that later too. But they bought this factory from the Aramaki slash AMF who owned Harley Harley Davidson and was making Harley Davidson Aramakis. This is the only time in history where Harley Davidson's making uh two strokes and uh little, I don't know, sub. Well, I can't remember, like 19, 1909s probably, or 1915s, probably the last time Harley-Davidson had a single. And because I, I think their V-Twin came out in like 1907 or 1909. Um, so like that's probably the last time they had a single that was like under 500cc and uh, something that wasn't a V-Twin up until... AMF bottom, and then they get Aramaki, and um, and during after the war they got their little Hummers from uh, DKW, right? So uh, the Harleys that were rebadged, uh, other other brands rebadged and called Harleys was kind of like, you know, that was they weren't really Harleys. Um, so it was kind of funny that that Kajiva buys their fa- their first factory um, from Harley slash. Aramaki and, and AMF. Um, so yeah, and uh, they did that in 78, I believe, or 79. Um, they actually used some of the two-stroke Aramaki Harley motors to power their little dirt bikes in the beginning. But then they ramped up, like just the next year, they ramped up and uh, production and developed their own race-winning off-road bikes. So Kajiva was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Kajiva was one of those brands that I remember... For two things, I, I mostly remember their off-road bikes as a kid. My neighbor and his brothers—he was the youngest of like eight kids, and so his older brothers were way older. Um, and then a bunch of sisters filled out the middle, and then him at the him at the bottom. So his older brothers would get stuff, and he would get all these cool bikes before he was even like like t- ten or fifteen years before he was even old, old enough to drive, like get a license. He already had all these bikes stacking up because his brothers were like you know t- almost two decades older than him. Um, so he his thing was full of Hodakas and Kajivas and Montessas and freaking 
a ton of Hondas too, but he had a ton of stuff in this little, in this gigantic uh, barn that they had. Um, and when I would go over, we'd, we'd ride BMX bikes and we'd do all this stuff. And then we would, um, Hey, let's go ride my 110 ATC. You know, the, the child killer. Yeah. He had a few of those and we'd go ride them around and we'd always be wrenching on them and fixing the pull starts. And he taught me how to work on a lot of stuff. Basically he was like by 10 years old or tw- yeah, 10 or 11, this dude had already rebuilt more motorcycles than I had ever seen and three-wheelers and all that crap. And he already knew how, how like, carburetors worked and stuff. He's tuning carbs and, well, rebuilding them at least at, by, like, 12 years old. And I was like, eh, what? You know, I didn't even know how to wipe my butt right at that age. And here, this kid's, like, rebuilding stuff. So we had a lot of fun together. But that's where I saw Kajivas. And due to where we lived... um, it was mostly dirt bikes, right? So I did not know that they really made like super bikes and stuff until later in my life when I was like, oh shit, Randy Mamola raced uh, Kajiva uh, 500 like in GP, you know what I'm saying? Before it was called MotoGP. So they did do a lot, quite a bit of things with Kajivas, but um, their big deal was, you know, they started out doing this uh, dirt bike thing then they moved, uh, you know, in 83, um, <clears throat> they kind of pulled a Bimota. And, well, everybody everybody did it a little bit. They were using um, Ducati motors, uh, the four-strokes. So they, they're moving away from two-strokes and getting into four-strokes in the, in the early 80s. Um, between 300 and, and 1,000 cc Ducati motors, uh, to enter the road going market. So they were getting away from motocross bikes and started doing road stuff. And in 1985, they just bought Ducati outright. So is Ducati still Ducati? I mean, they're still the same company. They, they kept Ducati actually in Bologna and, but they used Ducati motors in their bikes, like the six, six, the, uh, 650 elephant and something else. They had a I, I, I don't I don't know this personally, but I read online somewhere they had something called like the blue wing or something like that, or like the blue sky or something. So they had this crazy bike that they were using Ducati motors in. Uh the elephant is one bike that I really remember. I even I bought my son a shirt when he was a little kid that had the Kajiva and it had a big old elephant on the t- front. And I was like, Man, I love that shirt. I wish they made it in my size, but uh, yeah, that was like one of the first bikes I ever saw from Kajiva was the elephant. Um, so yeah, so do, so Kajiva buys Ducati outright. And now I, I'm at, I ask thee, <laughs> you answer to me now in 1969, did Harley Davidson cease to exist because AMF bought them? Because in 1953, sure, Indian went out of business, but DuPont owned DuPont, like, paint company bought them. Um, I could tell you, like, Snap-on owns a bunch of stuff. Uh, I think Snap-on owns some companies. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into all this. I, I that's This is what sparked my thing, this legacy fraud. I really started to think about it, and I was like, is it really legacy fraud? Like, Indian is Indian, no matter who owns them, just like Ducati's Ducati, no matter who owns them. And Harley was owned... Uh, by a different... Actually, listen to this. Harley was bought by AMF in 1969. So from 1901 to 1969, poof, Harley's gone. They don't exist as Harley. They're AMF now. And they got sold back to a board of 13 investors. So are they Harley-Davidson anymore? 
I can tell you, I think Willie G is their chief style what is was their chief styling guy. So he worked for Harley, but he didn't own Harley. And he was like one of the only last Harley Davidson um relatives that's working at that company company as far as I know I mean there might be the cousin of a cousin of a cousin of somebody um, that's still there but the CEO the board of directors it's not owned by a Harley or a Davidson anymore it's owned by the investors and the board of directors right just like AMF bought it so is Harley really a company any was did Harley end in 1969 uh, just like Triumph ended and uh, all these other people that end help. I think Mahindra's company bought Jawa for Pete's sake. And I know that TBS just bought, um, there's there's quite a few, uh, oh yeah, who's uh, SSR, Zongshen or something like that, bought Benelli. But they left Benelli alone, just like Kajiva did to Ducati. Kajiva bought Ducati, but they left him alone in Bologna and left him building at their own factory because they no way did Ducati want to move from Bologna over to Varese. You know, they're still in Italy, but we're not going to move. So, okay, you guys stay over there in Bologna and just do your thing, but we still own you. So Zongshan, I believe, or whoever the hell owns SSR, bought Benelli. They're, they have left Benelli in... Um, Italy and they're manufacturing in Italy, but a Chinese company owns Benelli. So is Benelli still Benelli? They're still made in Italy. They're leaving them there. They're not changing them. They're not bringing them to China and shipping them out here, you know, so or shipping them back to Italy and selling them. And a lot of people are claiming that the Harley Davidson streets are made in India and shipped here. There's got to be some that are made here. Come on. There just has to be, right? Like, just because you're making a bike for another market, Harley-Davidson has a few factories. They have some in Brazil. They have some in India. They have two in India, I think. They have one in, they're building one in Thailand now, or if, if it hasn't opened already. And then they have a couple here in the States. You can't tell me that they're building all their crap in India and sending it over here to Brazil to be made, to here to be made, like not made, assembled. I doubt it. I think that they're making some bikes that are smaller displacement in Brazil. I think they're making some smaller displacement bikes here in the States. And why would they make them in India to get over the tariffs there and then ship them back here and pay a tariff on their own bike? I think that's ridiculous. Um, you can't, I, I, I don't want to, I'm speculating that they make some of the smaller stuff here, but what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter to me. I ask you now, what does it mean when you say that this brand is this particular brand? Is it who owns it? Is it the length of time they've been in production? Like what makes a brand a brand? Because Kajiva bought Ducati straight up, used their motors after having used some Harley motors, you know what I'm saying? So Kajiva bought a little piece of everybody. And then but and what happened to Kajiva? Well, uh so in 1983 in 1983, they start using Ducati motors and in, and for their bikes to get it, to get into the road market. In 1985, they just straight up buy Ducati, and like I said, they left them in Bologna, but they're like kind of like Bimota now. They got a partnership with du, Ducati. Um, then in 1985, they also bought Moto Marini. They bought Husqvarna two years later, and a half a decade later. They bought the trademarks for MV Augusta. So let's... Kajiva's a mover and a shaker right now. And nobody... I don't know if any of you has ever heard of Kajiva. If you're 
like older than me, then maybe you have. But if you're younger than me, if you were born like in 2000, fuck you. But anyway, if you were born before that, yeah, still fuck you. But listen, keep your ears open, kids, and learn something. Kajiva was a big mover and shaker, and all this is happening like right under your nose, right? When you were crawling around in diapers, right? Wiggins was in diapers in 85 still. Shit, he might still be in diapers. I don't ask. But 85, I know Wiggins is only a couple years old, so I wouldn't expect him to know this. Hell, even by uh, half a decade later, so even by like 1990 or 91, I wouldn't expect him to know that they bought MV Augusta. He, he was probably in uh, elementary school then, right? So a decade later in 1996... There was this huge, massive investment company called uh, Texas Pacific Group. And in 1996, they bought AT&T Paradigm from Lucent Technologies. You may have heard of AT&T. Um, they also bought ownership of this wine company called O Behringer, Behringer Wines. They bought Ducati and Motor uh, Marini uh, via the acquisition of Kajiva. They also bought Del Monte Foods. These are all brands you might have heard of. Uh, and the Texas Pacific Group restructured Kajiva and MV Agusta became the main uh, brand comprising Kajiva and Husqvarna. So Kajiva owned Motomarini and MV Agusta and Ducati, right? And Husky at this point. Now when, when TPG buys them, they say, eh, I don't know why, but I'm a guess that Kajiva is like a, not a very well-known name. <laughs> you know, like Kajiva sounds weird. It's hard to pronounce. Um, it sounds like a watch, fancy watch. MV Augusta, hey, Count Augusta, he, uh, I think MV Augusta got into helicopters before they started doing motorcycles. The guy is a count. You know, the family has royalty and prestige in their name. So when TPG, the Texas Pacific Group, don't ask me if they're in Texas or if they're in the Pacific. I have no idea where they're at. I just, I'm assuming they're from America. When they buy this thing, when they buy uh, all these companies, they start, they, you know, they're an investment group and they're, they want to make sure people know, uh, feel prestigious or, I guess about their about their assets. So instead of this weird company named Kajiva that owns uh, Motomarini and Husqvarna and Ducati and all this and that and MV Agusta, we're gonna make MV Agusta the main brand who owns Kajiva and Husqvarna and uh, some people that you uh, you know may may have heard of or may have not. But every MV Agusta has, has like count for their uh, CEO or their founder. So later in this decade, TPG also went on to acquire this company called J Crew that you might have heard of, famous clothing company. Um, that, that one cost him a lot of money, by the way. Um, Oxford Health Plans, along with some other health health plan companies, and, and they're getting into like medical insurance, I think, which who knew that would be something huge back in the 90s, <laughs> you know? Uh, oh, uh, 25 years from now, that's going to be insane. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Let's buy these health companies and maybe we'll make something of it. Well, now, yeah, it's, it's like mandatory. Um, and eventually they bought Piaggio, and I forget if they did that in the night, like before 2000 or not, but eventually they bought Piaggio. So, now they have this whole portfolio. They're used to dealing with gigantic companies. Del Monte Foods, for Pete's sake, and um, 
J Crew and AT and T, like Behringer Wines, they got a lot, a lot of stuff. These Ducati, Motomarini, Kajiva, Piaggio, and Husqvarna. These are probably like little uh, blips on their radar compared to stuff like J Crew and fucking health plans, you know? So it's really weird. Um, so let's fast forward. I don't know how long, but I, I, I know it's a, at least like almost a decade later, Harley Davidson buys MV Agusta. So they buy the parent company of Kajiva. Um, a year before, like in 2007, Husqvarna had been sold to BMW. I'm guessing by TPG group. I'm guessing TPG held them all the way, uh, through the 90s into the early 2000s and then started selling them off, right? After they became profitable or to turn, you know, make a little, they probably bought them for pretty pretty dang cheap. Um, So at any rate, they are selling them off now. Harley Davidson buys MV Agusta now, who, uh, you know, is basically Kajiva and... um, I don't know if Moto Marini is still part of it at this point, but I know Husky had been sold out to BMW. They'd been split up and Husky been sold to BMW. Um, so the tables have turned. Kajiva, who once bought AMF Harleys <laughs> and used the Aramaki motors, the Aramaki slash quote Harley motors in their little dirt bikes back in the 70s, is now owned by Harley. Uh, you know, 20 years later. So two decades later. So... Um, so basically this is weird too. Husqvarna ended up in KTM's hands eventually reuniting the Husaberg and Husqvarna. That's a whole different story too. When, um, Husky got split up, I can't remember if it was the seventies or eighties. Husqvarna also makes like, it's similar to Honda and Yamaha and anybody else that makes like power tools and, uh, generators and lawn equipment and golf carts and shit like that. Um, Husky makes chainsaws and power tool equipment, right? And so that part of Husqvarna stayed separate from the motorcycle side of Husqvarna. And when they got bought by Kajiva, uh, they were like, listen, screw you guys. We're not going with you guys. We're going to stay here wherever the hell they were. And it might have been the town might have been Husaberg. And they said, listen, we're not the, the Husqvarna power tools thing that can go with you. But when you buy the motorcycle Husqvarna, you can have it and we're not moving. We're going to stay here and we're going to spin ourselves off and call ourselves Husaberg. And so Husaberg and Husqvarna was basically the same thing. It was just that uh, Kajiva owned the rights to the Husqvarna motorcycle company. So the actual Husqvarna motorcycle company that still stayed there was like, shit, we got to like call ourselves something. We don't own the rights to our own name now, but we st- we're not going with those assholes and making motorbikes. We're going to stay here and make Husabergs, right? So when um, KTM bought them from... Uh, when, they, when KTM bought them from BMW... Uh, KTM also owned Husberg, right? So now Husberg and Husqvarna are reunited as one. The it was the same company, but it's kind of like Exxon and and uh, SO and Standard Oil. Like they're all the same company. They're just called different things, right? So it was just a reuniting of these things, like year, uh, decades later, which is kind of a cool story in and of itself on another level. But we're talking about Kajiva right now. So, um, so Harley buys MV Agusta. So now Harley owns Kajiva. Um, 
So Envy, Augusta, and Kajiva were sold back to the Castiglione's in 2010 when Harley was like, Harley got them back up to speed and then basically gave them back to the uh, Castiglione family, or Castiglione, however the hell you say it, for like, I don't know, I read in Asphalt and Rubber like one euro. And for some reason, they didn't do some stock options. So, like, if they would have been sold like they were with the TPG group, Harley would have made some serious money, but they didn't. They just basically handed it back to the Castellonians for, like, one euro. I don't know if that's true, or I don't know if that's basically what it amounted up to when when they figured their profit versus loss when they sold it back, like their whole profit. They got them, they got them back up, and they put all this money into them and then sold them back, and... The profit that they made was a euro. I have no idea. But Asphalt and Rubber, they covered the reunion and had this little snarky remark to say, quote, with 100% ownership, the Italians are free to once again run MV Agusta into the ground, just like they did leading up to 2008, end quote. So two decades before, they had been, um, you know, well, I guess ever since the 70s or whatever when they were when they were ramping up then they started to ramp down a little bit and so everybody started to buy them away from them harley buys them and gives them back and now they're free to smash them up again so but i do have to say that they didn't own them that whole time the castellonis didn't own them after tpg did so um it's really crazy uh this whole story and and um yeah so since repurchasing the company the castellonis um, and MV Agusta in general, they've had some minor achievements, and I guess you could say some successes because I think MV Agustas are, uh, I mean, they're still in production somewhat. Where they still have some cool bikes. I think the F4 is the only one I could think of that they might have, um, but they still race once in a while. Uh, they still do stuff with the brand. Kaji- the Castellonis, the Kajivas, because it's Claudio and Giovanni, probably I'm guessing Giovanni Jr. So literally the Kajiva in Kajiva owns Kajiva. So is Kajiva still a company? They've pretty much been lying dormant actually for like over a decade because um, the, the company is focusing on MV Agusta right now. Uh, but you should check out the um, the Midos... Um, the Midos 525, I think SP or something like that. Beautiful, beautiful bikes. They look a lot like Ducatis, um, and it might be because they shared Ducati for a while, and MV Agustas too. So, I mean, just the, the styling on those little bikes is so awesome. They were beautiful. They're like 40 horsepower out of a 125, so, I mean, they're probably screamers. Um, the early, the, the, the Elephant actually won the car in, the, in like 90... In 94 or like 91 and 94 or something like that. So the early 90s, the elephant was uh, winning the car. I forget. I think it had like a big lucky strike thing outside. Uh, it was just such a cool looking motorbike. I love the way elephants look anyway, like those Dakar style ones. Um, and then they had some really cool road bikes going. And they, I forget this one that they had, but it basically reminds me, I forget what it was called, but it reminded me of a... Um, a uh, Magna, Honda Magna, but shrunk down to like 125. It looked a lot like a Magna, the fuel tank reminding me of a Magna. Um, and I, I don't know if the 750s were the same as the 1100 that I used to have, but 
they as far as I can remember, they look pretty similar. And this just looked like, <clears throat> pardon me, it looked like you took a uh, a magna and shrunk it down to a, like a single cylinder. It was pretty cool. But um, so so I mean, Kajiva did have some pretty cool bikes. They have a really good racing history as far as like moto. They won a lot of uh, moto stuff because their off road bikes kicked ass. Like I said, they won the Dakar twice. Um, they were pretty good in the in what we call MotoGP now, but what was like the 500 GP uh, in the 80s, they did pretty good. So I don't know. It's a it, to me, it's a story of um, what if the Hendys like here? What if the Hendys came back and bought, uh, or even the Hedstroms came back and bought? Um, Indian. One of those guys bought. One of one of the family members bought Indian. Would it make it Indian again? Like I don't know why. What what this the legacy fraud for real? There's like a whole bunch of stuff that's been happening ever since motorcycles were built. When motorcycles were very first built, they were not built wholly by even the Harley Davidsons. Um, they were and 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 Indians. Everybody. They were like sending stuff out back then, just like OCC choppers. They don't build everything. They had a frame builder, and the frame builder would send them their frames, and they'd slap their... Uh, <sighs> excuse me. They'd slap their crappy sheet metal on there, or maybe they'd build the frames and buy the motor. They, obviously, they're not, they don't, they're not a motor foundry company, so, I mean, they're not making the motors liter- literally. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's It's weird. Like, even ever since motorcycles were first invented nobody has ever made every single component in-house at first and even if they did uh um, nobody is still alive from 1901 that's still running the companies all right so it's been passed off to either a board of directors or investors or even a long 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 lost um relative but i can guarantee you if you go look at harley's board of directors on they have it on their website go look i don't think any of them are named davidson or harley um and so since 1969 has harley been pulling legacy fraud um since when did uh, since 85 when when kajiva bought ducati is ducati pulling legacy fraud you know what i'm saying like uh, this legacy fraud term, I thought it was so brilliant when Nokomoto brought it up, but then I thought it's a little bit harder to put our fingers on when you start looking at who owned what and what has been what. And then you take brands like Bimota. Bimota just manufactured frames, for Pete's sake. I don't, they didn't do any of their own suspension. And the Bimotas, if you look at the beginning, and Kawasaki owns Bimota now, right? I reported on Bimota when they closed, like... 20 like 17 or something like that or 16 they shuttered the doors back then and were lying dormant kawasaki just bought them um so kawasaki owns them but is it still bimota because bimota always used people's different people's stuff they the only thing they made was like their frames and then they threw everything else on it was like a kit bike it's like a ruf if you if you're into porsches it's like R, the company RUF. You know, they take a, they might use a Porsche power plant and then make their car around it or whatever the hell they do, but they don't call it Porsche anymore when they're done. Um, the SB uh, three is that my favorite bike from Bimota? I really like the SB three, but I also like the DB uh, one and all that stuff. So the SB was Suzuki Bimota, 
and then three was like third third bike or whatever that they made with that configuration. So SB was when they were using Suzuki motors. The DBs was when they were using Ducati motors. Now is it going to be KB? And I can't think of if they had any other partnership besides Suzuki and Ducati. I just can't remember any other Bimotas starting with anything other than S and D, but I could be wrong. You know, maybe there was a Another one that I'm just not thinking of right right now. But now are they going to be the KB because Kawasaki bought them? Are they going to have Kawasaki motors in them? Um, so, yeah, what was Bimota ever anyways is, I guess, my question. Were they even a brand? Um, so, yeah, when I, start, when I start thinking of legacy fraud and I start thinking of some of the other things that we've been talking about over the last few months and I listen to Nokomoto talk, ramble on, and they have us on and uh, talking about it, it just makes me think, Maybe we need to rethink what is a brand. And and uh, at the end of last week's show with them, I told I told them they should be proud because at right now, Indian, despite if they think it's legacy fraud or not, it's the brand's name, and it's been owned by different people since freaking George Hendy left the company right before you know, about 10 years before they went out of business anyway, and him and fucking one of the Harley guys went and were cattle ranchers together, like in Montana or some shit. And they're probably next to Teddy Roosevelt, who failed to be a good cattle rancher. But they were like good buddies, and they went off and did cattle ranching together. One of the It was either one of the Davidsons and and uh Hendy or and George Hendy or um one of the uh or William Harley and George Hendy you know went off I know they were buddies and they talked all the time and they went off to cattle ranch together uh and film broke broke back mountain um mark 1 but at any rate uh he was out of the picture long before so just like Harley Davidson no nobody named Harley or Davidson I think was at the helm after they died in the 40s or 50s, the last ones died like in the 50s. And after that, it was just like CEOs and presidents. And then 69 came and AMF bought them. So is Harley pulling legacy fraud? I don't know. You think about it. You get back to me and let me know what you think here on the old creative writing podcast. Let me know if Ducati is also pulling legacy fraud. And let me know if Kajiva comes back in. Kajiva being owned and MV Augusta, who is not owned by Count Augusta anymore, but is now owned by the Castellonis. Let me know if Kajiva comes back in since the original fucking guys that started the company, even though it's been out in, in the big wide world and come back to them full circle. If they started up again, is Kajiva pulling legacy fraud? It's the same motherfuckers that started it that are, would be re, uh, restarting it. So is that legacy fraud? That's like one of the Harleys coming back from the fucking dead and uh, or William Davidson and pulling off a, a Harley buyout uh, with ghost money, right? So, and, and the same thing with, uh, like if Count Augusta, I think he's dead, uh, but one of his, his son, you know, or something like that, or his daughter, even, even his, uh, mistress, I don't know, comes back and buys him via Augusta. So I don't know. You tell me like, I, if, if there's anybody that's not pulling legacy fraud, it'd be if Kajiva came back into business right now to me, cause it's the goddamn Castellonis, the actual people that started it, that bought it back. Um, Buell, Eric Buell, if you're out there listening to the show, um, I know that Buell is 
not you can't use that. They you can't use your own name because it's been bought and sold, you know, with the rights to the company and that even and and by Harley owns it and I don't think they're ever going to let it go. Buell Motorcycles then came and went and you can't use that. Then EBR, you can't use that. The guys that bought it, Liquid Asset Partners, I believe I mentioned this on Nokomoto, Liquid Asset Partners, or maybe I mentioned it with Wiggins. We're going to get into some Wiggins talk here in a little bit. Uh, But Liquid Asset Partners owns EBR, and they're still putting out parts. They bought all the machining and all the tooling and all that stuff. So is EBR, are they pulling legacy fraud with EBR because they bought it from the guy named EB in EBR? Uh, they're still making it. They have the original friggin' tools. Nobody pull, nobody pulls this uh, legacy fraud shit on Royal Enfield because Royal Enfield started production. The British took their bikes and set up a factory in India. And when the British factory went out of business, the Indian one was running concurrently and stayed in business. So is it that chain of command? Royal Enfield's been in business since, what, 1901 or 1902, something like that. So Royal Enfield, or no, Royal Enfield might have been around in 1899 because they were making, uh, they might have been making arms. I have no idea. But, um, uh, I think they get around this legacy fraud thing because it was it's like Harley Davidson going out of business here. Well, shit, good good thing we had a factory in uh, in uh, Brazil and a factory in India, and we're building one in Thailand because those ones are still around. So continuously, Harley Davidson is around, has been in, in uh, uh, production, and oh shit, you know uh, some Japanese brand goes out of business. Suzuki goes out of business. Well, they've had some partnerships with like uh, other companies. You know, Suzuki before they were Suzuki, I think they were making motors for other people, and I think they helped. Um, Hyosung helped Suzuki, so maybe Suzuki goes out of business and Hyosung's still in business, and oh shit, we're kind of still in business via Hyosung, whatever. So this chain of command bullshit and this legacy fraud, you tell me how it works, you tell me if it's a real thing, Um, and nobody calls Royal Enfield out on it, because they have, they used, uh, my friends, like 2003 Royal Enfield used the same tooling uh, from 1958. And they didn't change until 2014 when they totally redid all the factory and went to fuel injection so they could start passing emissions and be sold worldwide. My friend had to buy his Enfield on the gray market to get it into California. Um, And it had to have a certain amount of miles. It had to be a certain amount of years old and kind of be exempt from the smog laws um, to even get it into California. So when he got that bike and I looked at it, you could tell it was stamped on an old shitty uh thing from like the 19 like 1948 or some shit like that or 1958 the tooling hadn't been updated since then and you could you could very well tell um so talk about not legacy fraud they were literally using the same tooling and stamping and sh- and worn out shit that's why their stuff had quality problems is is it was OG it was legit as hell but, but it also was very very uh worn and not very well well i wouldn't say well maintained but just shit wears out over time and so the stuff was aging the machinery they were using on it so that's royal enfield totally gets a pass on this legacy fraud shit because they literally have uh existed 
concurrently with the when the British factory went down, the one in India stayed open, and that's why they're considered an Indian brand, even though technically it was taken there um, by the Brits. All right, enough of this. Let's get into some... I have a little bit of listener mail. Um, So... Ray, one of our patron patron uh, supporters, says, "Hey, junk." Actually, says, "Sup, junk." Sup, junk. Long time no chat, and that's true, Ray. I hope you're doing good up there in Portland, and I hope everything's working out for you. Um, I'm in great need of all knowledge of cam timing and cam chains. Uh, I just did my valve clearance check of my Tiger 800, and I got all the shims I needed after having to go to the dealership three times and taking off the cam ladder so many times I could do it in my sleep. I got the fuel tank back. Uh, back on and started it up. It sounded okay, except the cam chain was making a racket. I thought it was just the tensioner needing uh, pressure since the bike had been sitting for a few days, but letting it run for for about 45 seconds, it still sounded really loose. Still sounded really loose. Followed all the steps when reinstalling. I used Muddy Sump's YouTube videos for reference, and I made marks on the chain and all the cam gears at top dead center uh, when I went to put the chain on, so it'd be super easy. But uh, when I turn the motor by hand, the tension is fine at top dead center, and the marks I made line up perfectly. But when I first put it back, to, when I first put it back together, but at one point the exhaust side opposite of the tensioner becomes somewhat loose. I'm not sure if it skipped a tooth, this has a bad tensioner, or if the chain uh, could be bad. It's only got 25,000 miles, and it's been well kept by the previous owner. My last resort is to have it uh, brought to my friend's shop, which isn't ideal for me right now. If you or anyone you know has some insight, it would help prevent me from going outside and finding someone to cough directly into my face, so I won't have to deal with the valves and cams anymore. (laughs) So, Ray... And it says, sincerely, Picky Cam Man Ray. I think Picky Cam Man Ray should be your blues name. I think you should start singing blues songs as Picky Cam Man. So, Picky Cam Man, I got something for you. I'm going to say this, because I did watch those Muddy Sumps videos as well. I think the shim under bucket has got to be the worst goddamn cam. uh, It's like my least favorite cam adjustment because you have to, you literally have to take, I've never heard it called the cam ladder, but I heard sticky, muddy, muddy sump, sticky sump, calling it the cam ladder. And I was got a good, got a good chuckle. I'm going to try and tell you this, like, like muddy sump talks. Okay. I can't do the accent. I'm terrible at accents. So, uh, I'll just talk like he does though. So you took the cam ladder off. I call that a cam retainer. But that's me. <laughs> okay, I can't do it anymore. But that that that's how I fell asleep watching the the uh, the video about six times. Um, what I would say, Ray, is that I would do this. There's there is one step that's crucial that Muddy Sump did in their video that I hope you did too. Um, oh God, I'm trying to do yoga here to get get comfortable. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, So there is one crucial step that Muddy Sump did. When they put the cam uh, back on, I think he put the, uh, he put the exhaust cam on first, then he put the intake cam on. And while he was putting the intake cam on, he wedged a little, between the tensioner and the case, 
this he had the right side cover off, which is I guess where the cam tensioner is, is on the right side. He had that off and he wedged a little something or other in there. Maybe it looked like an old cam, it looked like one of the old tensioners to me. Like maybe he took out the the chain guide or a tensioner or something from the old <clears throat> maybe he had an old one laying around the shop. Maybe it was a freaking chain brush. I don't know, like the handle of a chain brush. I couldn't tell what it was. But he was wedging something in there to keep it taut. I'm assuming that he he I saw a video on replacing your cam chain tensioner, which he also did, and it looks like it's an automatic adjuster one. Those really suck too. Having automatic adjustable ones, I mean, yay, they're quote maintenance free, um, but you do have to rebuild them. He showed how to rebuild uh, the seals and stuff and and do it, but also you. Don't get to tighten it when your chain starts to get loud. I did notice that the upper cam cha- uh, cam chain guide too looks like it bolts down when you bolt the cam tower or the cam retainer or the cam ladder, whatever you're going to call it, back down um, to the head. So I don't think that was flopping around making noise. What I think happened was, and you said here in your email that it seemed a little bit loose um, on the exhaust side when you're putting it back on. And I think it's because when you were like lining everything up and putting it back on, you didn't have tension against the chain. So my guess is the chain had a little bit of slack in it when you stuck it on the very first, the exhaust, if you did it exactly like he did, when you were wrapping the chain around the um, exhaust cam sprocket, you didn't have it pulled super, super tight. And even if you did, you didn't have um, tension on it like he did, how he wedged that little brush or piece of something or other in between the case and the tensioner to keep it tight. So the chain got some slack at the bottom and it allowed it to get like, it allowed it to rotate a tooth or something or get like a little bit of slack on the front edge. So my guess is, is that it's just got a little bit of slack in it. Um, However, you stuck it on and that your, your timing marks might've been perfectly fine, but the chain just was loose on the bottom, on the bottom sprocket. Um, and it wasn't pulled super, super tight, or maybe it was, and you just had it weird, like half a, t- like the way the, uh, sprocket was rotated. It was like half a tooth getting ready to rotate onto the next tooth or whatever. So it wasn't able for you to pull it super tight just by half a tooth or something like that. That'd be my first guess that keeping that tension on that chain is partially what did it. Um, because it allowed it to sag somewhere else along the line, which would give you your, uh, when you're turning it by hand, it would give you that, um, slack on the, on the exhaust side. Also, if you're turning it one way, you're not going to, it's going to be tight on that side because you're going to be rotating the chain, uh, one way. If you turn it by hand the other way, of course, it's going to be, it's going to have slack on that side, depending on which way you're turning the motor. I don't know if you turned it the same way all the whole times. That would be good to know for me. Because uh, if you rotate it, <laughs> you know, if you rotate the the crank or whatever, or the wheel, maybe you were doing it with the wheel like he was. If you're spinning it forward and it's spinning the chain uh, forward, then there's going to be slack on whatever side it's spinning toward. And if you're spinning spinning it backwards or spinning the crank backwards or however you were doing it, there's going to be, it's going to be taut on that side. So I don't know. It depends on which way you're spinning the crank as to which way the, uh, the, 
the tension or the uh, slack would be also in the chain. But I'm going to assume that if you, uh, on my bike, I adjust the, the thing, uh, it's not automatic. Let me just put it that way. It's not an automatic adjuster and it's not a hydraulic adjuster like that one looked like it was either. Um, so you just got to tighten it every time. And my, my, SR still clacks like a mofo. They just they're just clacky. So I don't know it, if it was clacky beforehand and it sounds normal. It's probably normal. It just might be the valve train sound. But if it does sound like the chain is really loud and slappy, um, I would recheck it again and just check to make sure that you pulled it tight across there. And shim under bucket. I hate shim under bucket, but um, a lot of good bikes use it and. Uh, yeah, you just got to take so much stuff apart rather than being able to adjust it um, like the little rocker arm sort sort of style. But yeah, uh, so Ray, let me know if that helps. Let me know if you take it apart and re-tighten the chain and put, keep tension on the back side of it, on the tensioner side, and uh, pull, it, pull it taut and just make sure that when you're tightening everything down, you have tension on it and it's not just you didn't pull it tight and then let it hang. So let me know if that helps. Let me know if tightening it helps, like some or rebuilding the tensioner helps or anything like that. And if not, hopefully somebody's listening right now that can tell us uh that owns a tiger and is like, yeah, this is this is what you have to do on those things. So let us know. All right. Well, uh, patrons, I do have a little a little surprise for you this week. We have a special guest from jail who made an appearance last night when Wiggins and I started to record the show. So uh, we have a little, uh, I wouldn't say interview, but we got a phone call from Jay. So patrons, if you want to get an update on Jay, I know a lot of you have been asking. I'll stick our little interview uh, on Patreon this weekend. Um, everybody else, let's get into our little chat that Wiggins and I had and see what we talked about. And let's call the show. You guys can get back to sleep. I sound like I need a nap. I do need a nap. I'm going to go take a nap. It's Friday. Why not? I don't have anything going on tomorrow. And uh, if you have a mother in your life, get on the goddamn gas right now because Mother's Day is next Sunday. And uh, don't be in the bucket that I'm in which is shit bucket. Uh, yeah, don't be up shit creek in a bucket right now. It's uh, especially with like deliveries going the way they are. I think they're still delivering like essential foods and seniors first. So if even if you're ordering something nice off of Amazon or Etsy, I doubt it'll get to, to where you're, you know, hoping the way the post office and shit's working right now. Um, but anyways, yeah, let's get into our little chat that Wiggins and I had called the show. And then I'm going to take a nap. You guys listen to the rest of the show and enjoy your Friday. All right. Peace and grease, baby. myself so but you're coming in loud and clear i'm sure okay, i'm coming in loud and clear yeah you i mean you sound fine on my end but yeah again, like i can just turn up my headphones so i don't know what's right or wrong 
Right. Well, last week too, I uh, was listening to the Nokomoto and it did sound like I was in the garage. They told me I sounded fine, but I could have sounded way better. So now I'm going through the uh, the mixer and it's got some preamps and like smoothing my voice out. I don't sound like a retarded chipmunk. Well, I do sound like retarded chipmunk, but uh, not on purpose. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Wigs, sounds like you're playing Call of Duty and a uh, little of everything. I got text coming in. A friend of mine, I don't have SolidWorks and a friend of mine does. So he's like, he's taking my knife DXFs and um, we're changing them a little bit, doing a couple of updates. I got a $500 piece of material that's 10 inches wide by 36 inches long on my floor. So uh, I'm going to get them uh, water jet blanks. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So, but we're, we're going through making sure the handles are all the same, making sure that like I had all my stuff straight basically. And then we're changing the holes, to pockets, and then the handles have to be the same though, because um, then I can take the geometry from the handle on the knife blank and I can basically cut the blade off, do like a little radius on it. And then I have like a literal handle. Um, and then I can take in my G10 and I can get my G10 water jet too. Nice. So yeah, nice. I'm pumped about that. Cause that's a pain yeah. in the butt. Have you been and doing a lot of knife stuff lately? No, cause I'm out of material. I mean, yes, I have oh. this $500 piece on my floor, but, um, like that's it. And that's going to water jet. So I haven't, um, yeah. I'm out of my little roosters. I got a couple other ones that uh, are for sale, but yeah, I, I mean that's really about it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I I I felt like I'd have so much time on my hands that I wouldn't know what to do with it. With with uh, my wife and yeah. I were talking, and it's really like the only thing I I don't have to leave here to go get the kids right after school, right? Yeah, and so well, I and- feel like. Since you work from home anyway, like that stays totally the same. Yeah. Um, And it like, for me, it's weird because like I'm not in my car all day, but you know, I have a three-year-old running around, so I'm trying to like do work and deal with that. But honestly, with my job right now, like it's, as long as I'm available for customers, it's about all I have to do. Yeah. Um, Did Evie turn three like recently? No, not yet. Not until July. Okay, but, I thought so. I was like, yeah, wow, that and you got mad so at me fast. for saying she was three, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's but to me, she's far enough past two and a half that I want to call her three, yeah. <clears throat> so, but um, but come when she's 20 and a half, you're gonna be like, oh no, girl, you're not 21 yet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you ain't going to a bar till the day after you're 21, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, like I'm I'm busy a little bit and I do have time, but it's also like I don't know. I don't really have a bike to work on. My garage is a mess. Like my, you know, everything for the most part's going. I did. I'm working on getting. So my oil bag got done for my little chopper that I've been waiting six months to get painted. Um, yeah. My, you finally got that painted, right? Yeah. Not the tank though. Just the oil bag. Yeah. Yeah. The tank is black and he's waiting on uh, a badge to do this, the color, which is just real simple, red, white, and blue old AMF stripes. Right. So I was like, well, a vinyl sticker works. I know a lot of people just do vinyl stickers and clear over them, and you can't even tell it's a vinyl sticker because they put so much yeah. clear to make it look good. Um, that's how that's how most uh, yeah, like that's how most stuff comes nowadays is like a yeah. sticker over about like five layers of clear coat over it, so it's like smooth, and then they right. Um, I think that. I mean you know some of the obviously like real car companies they're going to use decals and stuff, but. Um, I know a lot of the like painters, it's just literally that, or they'll use a vinyl 
and then paint it and use it as like a tape, you know? Oh, but, right. Okay. Yeah. For like I said, this isn't a show bike, so I'm not using legit decals. I'm not. Um, and since I'm ripping off an old AMF paint job, I went to a friend of mine who's got a vinyl cutter and uh, who's local. I almost called Corey. <laughs> so I know he'll hear this. So it'll be funny. But yeah, I was like, I was super close to being like, hey, you want to cut me some vinyls and ship them out? Because I know he would. Yeah. But um, so I'm doing an old AMF one. It used to say AMF, have a line, then say Harley Davidson. It's just plain black background, white outline. So I'm just going to do a white vinyl. And instead of AMF, they're going to put the bar and shield in it. It's going to be about an inch yeah. tall, however long it comes out. And then he'll kind of tape off the uh, stickers or the stripes based on that. And it's what actually, was that, uh, um, what was that sportster that just came out last year that had that? They already oh, dropped it for this year, but you know what I'm saying? It was the in 19, they had the 1200, like, custom. I don't think they dropped it. It was just the iron 1200, but they yeah. didn't do, it was the same stripes actually, but they didn't do the red, white, and blue. They did like, you know, a black tank with gray stripes, right? Tried to modernize it, which is cool. I get that. Um, and actually, too, this tank paint job is uh, Corey's dad has a dirt bike with it. Um, and I thought it only came on the dirt bike, but I've seen it. Oh, sh- does he have an Air Monkey? Well, a Harley Davidson Sprint? Like yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it only came on the Sprint, but I think I've seen it on. Actually, I'm like 99% sure I've seen it on like baggers back in, you know, in the AMF days. Because they did like my, my sports store used to have that red, white, blue paint job, um, which I bought a 3.3 gallon tank. It might go back to that paint job, but so it it had that. So it's basically a different version of that. It's just the like short stripes. They're like maybe four inches long and it just goes like on the right side. It'd be like from the bottom and go red, 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 the logo, blue, 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 blue over the top would be like white all the way across the top little stripes. Um, they're weird, man. They're not even like proportioned to the tank, <laughs> but right. um, it was just an old AMF one. And I dig so many of the old AMF paint jobs and I think they look, you know, they fit the bike. So anyway, yeah, hopefully my stickers getting cut soon. I stopped at my buddy's print shop the other day. Um, yeah. What was that other sportster? They had the iron 1200 and the something, it was either the custom or something, maybe the 1200 low or something. They had one the of- roadster. I don't remember if it had it. The customs, I don't think had it. The only one I remember really having that was that iron 1200. Yeah. And that one's still around for this year, but they dropped the other one that came out last year. I don't know. Yeah. And I swear it had like the, cause the iron 1200 has like the horseshoe AMF one. And the other one I swear had like the S kind of AMF. Now, one. I've seen them both. Uh, was it the 48? Did the 48 have that on it? Maybe it was the 48. Oh, that's what it was called. The 48 special. That's what it was called. Yeah, that the, was, 48, that was, the 48's been gone for a while. Yeah, but last it year... Had that, yeah. It had that little uh, tiny tank. They may have. Yeah. They've been really like pulling back on the... Or like, you know, pulling those old paint jobs out of the archives and yeah. going with them. Which that's I think... What it, that's Obviously, what it was. I'm painting my bike, so I think that's a great idea. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that that whole stripe shit from the '70s is coming back big time too. Like my dad used to have a Chevy GMC that was like I think they called it Cheyenne Brown or Sh- Cherokee yeah. Brown, yeah, and it yeah. had some like brown stripes in it like that. And I just Biltwell just sent me an email today yeah. with one of their new helmets has that shit on it, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, crazy. They're all pulling from that. I mean, the thing is. Harley's really haven't changed since the seventies. So it's like that cool retro look. Um, and Harley's modernizing it a little bit, you know, they're doing more flake and 
Like I'm totally not doing any flake unless there's just like flake in it. Cause you know, I don't think a lot of them are like monochromatic, but it's just black, a plain red, a plain blue, plain white. Uh, and that's it. Just super, yeah. you know, if you look up like AMF tank paint jobs, there's a lot of cool ones. Hey, do you remember this is, this goes back a couple years ago, but do you remember the Sportster 72? Yeah. It was all that, like Cholo styled. Dude, that was super like, yeah, that was some super crown. low rider. Big old bass boat flake metallics mm-hmm. all over everything. Yeah. yeah. That one, the 72, and what the hell else came out right around that time? There was a Nightster 1200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was kind of the first version of the irons. Iron, right. Yeah, that was the, new, the well, So they did the Nightster and then the, 880, the Iron 883. And then basically the iron and the nicer were the same, except for the mags, the iron had mags and it was hot. It sold so much better, but it was a lot of like newbies and all the people like myself, like, dude, if I was like, well, I don't know, maybe a bagger, but other than that, like a sportster, like there's a lot of people that ride, so they want sporties. Um, and, but the iron we're like, dude, it has these badass mags, but it's only an 883. And then they did, they ended up doing that iron 1200. Yeah. And you know what I got to say? Like, if you look at anything with mags, all the way from like the Honda fucking Comstars to yeah. Harley Davidson's, they all sell better than uh, spokes. spokes. I yeah. think, I mean, I don't know. You look at like a lot of the Thruxtons and stuff, like those are all people like the spokes, right? Because they look retro. But I love like the Honda Comstars. I love those wheels. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, they had just came out. I mean, a few years before, but those were the, like my, the bikes my dad had, had those wheels on them. So I've always liked those Comstar wheels. Yeah. Uh, right. So. And when I grew up as a kid, most of my neighbors had, well, when I first got introduced to motorbikes, uh, all of my, my neighbor ha- had, um, almost every single thing he had was on spokes. It was all dirt bikes and you just don't usually put, yeah, you know, yeah. that type of wheel. Like you don't put mags on a dirt bike. So, yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Totally, totally different style of stuff I was used to seeing. But nowadays, yeah, everybody likes the spoke retro look. Mm-hmm. They put them on fucking Yamahas. Who knew? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it, it's smart from a manufacturing standpoint because they're affordable. They last. I mean, there is a little maintenance involved that there's not an, in mags. And, you know, yeah. Emma and the Misfits did a show about them. Like when they first came out with them. With mags, they were too rigid. And the Comstars had the way they were riveted together. They had a lot of engineered flex in them. Um, You know, where spoke wheels have that flex. Because if you think about it, too, if you look at a spoke, if people don't understand this, the the spoke wheel doesn't hold itself together um, like where it touches the ground. That's not what's holding you up. It's no. really, for the most part, the spokes on the opposite side. Opposite side, yeah. It's and, like and, yeah, and even kind of the front and the rear because you're, it, they won't let it deform the circle, but it's a pulling force on the spokes. It's yeah, like where a mag's totally opposite, right? You're pushing on that wheel. Yeah. But, you know, so they have to be kind of thicker, but it's kind of crazy like when you look at how spokes work. I mean, yeah, it's like you know, riding you, on a suspension bridge, sort of. In a yeah, it way. is, absolutely. You know, yeah. look at bicycles, how thin the wheels get um, and the spokes, but they hold people up. 
So yeah. Oh, dude, there was this guy that not to nerd out on spokes and stuff, but there was this guy that builds wheel sets for bicycles, and he was like, "I guarantee this thing is going to be is so strong." He built some wheels and somehow stuck them on a Honda Civic on the back wheel so that it wasn't the drive wheel. You know, it was just coasting along, mm-hmm. and obviously he just like put like a a bolt through so that it would ride on it because right. you. You know, his car bolt pattern doesn't match up to bicycle. <laughs> but he's like, dude, check this out. And his spoke and his rim were so good that he rode around for a while and it didn't break. He's like, let's see what it takes to break. And he was like doing donuts in the car and it finally folded and broke. Yeah. You know, well, like first, and, first and the problem with doing a donut in a car is it's a side force where oh, yeah. motorcycle <laughs> wheels aren't meant to handle that or <laughs> bicycle right. wheels. Right, you don't. So spokes really aren't good for that unless you have a really wide hub. Um, and Dude. if you use bicycle hubs, he didn't. Yeah. Have you ever seen a spoke let go like on a in a motocross race or anything? Oh, dude, it's devastating. The dudes will be coming down from like thirty feet in the air, and all of a sudden they're just like planted. I've seen like them dirt. like they come loose a lot on dirt bikes, and I've seen them break on dirt bikes. But there's enough of them, and the rims are stiff enough that it's usually not a problem. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, if, if Villapoto breaks one during a race, but the difference with guys like Villapoto too, or whoever, I don't even, he might, I think he's retired now, isn't he? Shows how much I know about motocross. <laughs> but if right. he's doing it, like those wheels were checked before the race. So if they break, they break, they don't get yeah. loose. And then another one opposite break and kind of even it out. So, you know, I could see that definitely being a problem. And guys like that are on it a lot more, you know I mean? Yeah. I saw one grenade. I think it was like Chad Reed or something who he's, he's even like, you know, I don't know if he's still competitive or been out of it for a while, but he, they, it was like one of those guys, um, the fucking wheel just, he hit, he hit, he was going through the whoops or something. And then yeah, it hit a think jump. how hard those guys hit. The oh my too. god! And those things, I mean, those horse, those bikes make like seventy horsepower. They're making as much as like a Ninja yeah. six fifty flying and through those. The and guys like that, like they wide open over the whoop so that they stay on top of them. Yeah, they don't. It's so ins- and supercross whoops are nasty, dude. Yeah, they're, they're like four feet tall. You don't realize how. I think they're more than that. Yeah, you don't realize be. it when you watch them cruise across them so smooth. You don't think about it, but yeah, when you like stand by some and try to ride some, it's nuts. Yeah. I've only ridden a Dude. set of whoops, and the ones I rode were like two feet or maybe a foot. I've only ridden them correct a few times, and to get it right in your head is the craziest thing because yeah. you want to, you want to like kind of land on it. And it's like, no, you hit the first one, you got to get your weight in the right spot, and then you're like, just cruise just over them as fast as you can, them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I know it's I, so weird. And the I've ones I were on again were tiny. Yeah, I was going to say, I've only ridden over one foot ones and they felt like six foot to me. But those ones, if you stop or get off the gas, you fall down like six Oh yeah, feet you crash. <laughs> yeah, you crash real so, hard. Whoever it was had just come off some whoops and then jumped and the spoke, the wheel like exploded. You could see it it, it exploded when they hit the lip or something and you could see it like wobbling in the air and he's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like slow motion trying to jump off. Because when, when guys down, like that break it, it's like, it's a, yeah. like a super hard impact. Oh, yeah. it's a hard fail. Right. Yeah. So when they let go, it's bad news. Uh, yeah. I've, I'm glad that I've never, I, I rarely do spoke maintenance to be honest. Like I rarely 
rarely mess around with spokes, but once in a while I'll spin the wheel and do the little ting with the wrench, you know, ting 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 thud. Oh, I need to tighten those suckers because I don't want that to be me one day on the road. But yeah, yeah, but yours will they'll come loose and you might break them. But usually, what happens on that because it's a it's a little bit over a time. It's not one salt unless, you know, you hit a yeah. pothole or something when they're bad. So yeah. as long as you stay on top and make sure they're all kind of tight, um, yeah. you know, you won't necessarily have a problem, but that's, I only, yeah. I only check them like once or twice a year. I don't think you yeah. really need to. I, in my owner's manual, I can't remember any of them saying, check your spokes all the time. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I rec- all you do is take a wrench and tap them and make sure they yeah. go. Ting. Make sure they and if they ting. go dud, and you tighten <laughs> yeah, it up a little. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the BMW too. Well, a lot of BMW is the first one I know that did it, and probably yeah. Ducati or Triumphs. Like, oh, I did it first. The, the two spokes. Yeah. So they spoke. Yeah. They the spokes go out to the edge of the rim instead of in the center. Yeah. So that they can you can run a tubeless tire because it's out it's outside the bead you know the spoke yeah mounts outside the bead well so yeah not it's not in the air. center like usually where the air would come out you can do it in other ones but there's just you know big heavy rim strips and stuff and it's yeah really good do you remember do you remember when the when Harley Davidson I want to say right around 2012 maybe um, had those rim strip kits do you remember that and I don't remember the- Harley having one but yeah. I, I have seen some crazy dirt bike ones um, yeah. To make them like tubeless, it's like this weird bead lock thing, yeah. um, and you, so you do like a tubeless dirt bike thing because the trails guys like tubeless because they want to run a low psi. Yeah, two um, pounds. And then you hit a rock weird or sharp rock, and you get a flat tire, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're like that sucks. Yeah. So I, I want to say it was after 2010, but just it, it, I haven't seen it recently. So it was only for like a couple of years there when the touring models like the electric glide standard and stuff still had spoked wheels. They hadn't yeah. they like literal, literal spokes. They hadn't gone to like the spoke mags. Yeah. They had, these, they had these like rim strip kits that were like a hundred dollars just for the kit. And yeah, it basically made this rubber bead that went around your tire. And and they also had, you know, they have like spoked wheels already have a rim strip so that it won't, the spokes won't poke your inner tube. So it yeah. had one of those. And then it had this fat channel that ran around that you put around the tire next. And that acted as the bead. So when you stuck your tire in there, it pushed that out against the, the wheel. And there's your, there's your bead. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, you could run tubeless. Um, spoked wheels with this like special s- kit, yeah. but if you got a fucking flat or something like that, or po- you had to like replace like the whole thing or something like that, there was some. Sh- well, you, you probably had to replace the tire, which is what you do on a tubeless wheel anyway. Yeah, or you plug yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. The dirt bike ones I saw were weird, man, and they were super super hard to put on because they're they're real thick, and you have to. Um, I it, I don't think it locked the bead on. Maybe it had a spot that did because again, it was for a. Uh, you know, like an enduro bike that I saw it on, but yeah. you, it was weird, man. It was like this thick red thing. The valve core kind of went through, right? So you could air up through the tire instead of the, the rim strip. Yeah. And it was, I was remember it like, it might've been a moots. Yeah. Cause those uh, things, I looked into those before when I was afraid of taking Spamla off road one time, I was going to go out to Nevada to visit my brother. And I was like, I should do some like off roading. There's like a bunch of dirt roads on the way to Nevada and then I was like, oh, I'm afraid to get a flat. You like, would ride Spamala all the way <laughs> to Vegas. I did. I did. <laughs> I I've know. done it a couple of times. It was amazing. Um, the funny part, is, I, it's so crazy because I didn't know you and you went to the race at uh, the, the flat. Yeah, the race. Yeah. 
uh, the super prestigio, baby. It would have only made this story better if I won and didn't get fucking dirty pass. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was on that trip though. Well, and, and the other times I've gone out there, I was looking for like a moose, but I, I read that they disintegrate. They only use them really for off-road like GNCC stuff because they're only good for X amount of miles. And so when you're running like, why? A, like they would well, because they get they get smashed and they'll eventually disintegrate. It's like oh, a hard foam, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so the one get, I saw, I don't think you could smash it, man. You'd have to totally invert the tire around. Yeah. It, so the other thing, one, so I don't know. I mean, yeah. the The other thing was that the guys that had used them on the road said, you know, you're doing a such higher speed and your tire heats up on pavement that it was like just melting the moose inside, and then eventually uh, it was like riding on a flat tire. Yeah, because so it's like, got to yeah. be kind of flexible, right? Mm-hmm. So you can. So you can get it on. Right. And to take some absorption since you're not using air. It's basically just... No, no, no. The one I saw still used air. Oh, see, the ones I'm talking about are like... Yeah, no, it was a a rim strip. It was a real thick... I think it was... Oh, It was a real thick rim strip. And then the valve core went through. So you still aired the tire up, but all it did was seal. Oh, sick. Yeah. That's a little different though, then that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's the one I saw. So yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. They're like foam and it's supposed to feel like whatever PSI, but you don't really get any yeah. adjustment. Um, and no. they do because those are working the whole time, right? Um, yeah. So those ones do disintegrate over time. And you know, that, since they, they don't want to get a flat in the middle of like a desert, that's they usually use them for like like off-road shit because they don't want to yeah, get flat yeah. but they also don't well, the thing i saw like, was also for off-road but it was a legit tubeless and your, your cool. tire hold, held air yeah now you got to think too a lot of bicycles are tubeless and they're a higher psi but they there's a couple ways that they've done it though one of the first ways was they um literally uh they didn't drill the nipple hole all the way through the rim so oh, the gotcha. company took one of those like high speed like they call it a drill, but it's not. It's just a pointed little bit. And they would go in and they would punch, they would put the hole in it at high speed. It would basically melt the aluminum, create this really thick burr, and then they would tap the burr. Gotcha. Ooh, that's smart. Yeah, Ooh, and it keeps it because it, it heats up so evenly. It's nice and even all the way around. It's nice and thick. And then they would cut threads in that. So because it was a double wall rim, Usually, you know, you, you would drill, you had to drill from the backside to get the spoke in with the nipple. Yeah. So I always came up with a way to do it, like, because bicycles were double or triple wall, and a lot of them were cutting out one of the walls. I was like, well, you could just cut it on that wall, and, like, if the nipple hole was close enough to the edge, you could shove the nipple in, but I never... You um, could also just make the center like you're making a wheel set right is it because you want to save weight too that you don't want to make the middle of the rim like super thick or something to to be able to tap it you know what i'm saying like just on the reg and just yeah 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 i mean bicycles man there's nothing more important than weight they'll put i don't i mean the ride quality was why they went tubeless on a mountain bike yeah it made it handle better and it made it ride better so that was most important you actually didn't save weight because you could put a thin tube in and uh, the tubeless tires were heavier. Yeah. But um, it was on the ride other, quality was the most. Right, right, right. Weight's, weight's more important because you feel it. I mean, you do and on a motorcycle, other, but it's a bigger difference, you know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And way different when you're talking about even having a suspension. Um, yeah. and, and like 40 horsepower versus one human power. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, plus, I didn't think about the fact that you're like usually putting this the spoke through the hub. How are you going to spin it into a thread if you can? Well, the, of yeah, I had seen them. I mean, people had tried like making weird little hooks in the rim and running yeah. the spokes, which I think I've seen other motorcycles too, running the spokes the other way and then oh. putting like kind of assembling the hub so they could like lock the nipple in. Gotcha. But that way didn't really work very well. Um, remember Travis Pastrana while rode those Spocks, those Spinergy wheels? Uh, Spinergy, I don't know if they ever made motorcycle wheels before that, but that was a, a bicycle wheel that they did. It was mm. like a carbon composite spoke, but it, how we talked earlier about how you could like tie the spoke up in a knot, you know, it wasn't hard stainless. Yeah. Um, but that was what we said earlier where you're pulling on spokes, not pushing on them. Right. And they, they did it for dirt bikes for a while and they talked Pastrana and riding them, but that the concept sucked on, it didn't suck on bicycles, but it just also wasn't a huge benefit. I right. think that's the same problem Pastrana it's had. Kind of like, uh, like the, um, the Buell ZTL brake. it worked, but it wasn't like a huge benefit when <sighs> yeah. you're talking and, about compared to correct. other just yeah, as good it, it, systems, it, right? yeah, it makes sense. The biggest and the funny part is with the ZTL, like um, the biggest benefit for that wasn't anything to do with the brake. It was to make the front wheel lighter. Right. But again, if it was really that big a difference and, you know, so, yeah, you have one rotor instead of two, but it's bigger and it's a it's on a larger diameter. So your centrifugal forces are more. Um, my, my old man explained it to me like this. If it really worked, you think the Japanese would fucking do it too, or right. or you don't think Honda hasn't tried that? <laughs> I mean, don't right. get me wrong. I, I you know I've talked in the show. I think Eric Buell is a genius. Sometimes he's a mad genius, and sometimes he's a legit genius. But yeah. I do believe one hundred percent he's a genius. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that I feel like was more gimmick, you know. And it, it long run, it makes it such a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, you had to have, right. You had to have, you had to mount the, um, the brake caliper on a certain spot. So no, that it I mean, reach that, like it's, inverted not a, brake caliper. it's not even that, like you got to go to one place. Like a lot of brake pads are very kind of universal. Um, right. they fit several different calipers, not that Buell pad. Um, you no. know, well, a lot of rotors same way. Um, yeah. Even if you wanted to get a caliper. Rotor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you want to get a caliper, you have it facing facing the wrong way out. Yeah, that was like one of the cool <laughs> things with the um, when they went to the radial mount calipers is most of them have the same hole spacing, so most of them will fit different bikes. Yeah, you know, there's there's like I think it's 107 millimeters is what the speed merchant adapter is, and that's like Jigsers and Hondas, and I think Cowie might have a weird one, or some of the Cowies are weird or something. But you know, it's it's like man, they're all almost the same. So, yeah. and then Tokiko, you know, being a big common brake manufacturer or Nissan, right? They use the same pads in a bunch of their different calipers, whether it's a radial mount or not. And then now with the radial mount, like you're going to put basically the same pad and the same brake mount or caliper mount on your 600, on your thousand, on different brands. Like, right. right. It's just, it makes stuff easy where the Buell is like a pain in the ass. And then a side effect that no one really knew when it happened um, you know, until it was too late is uh Buell rotors warp real bad. Yeah. I've heard that too. And mine was not perfect, but it was pretty good. And two sessions at Willow, man. And I could just feel it getting worse. 
And you know, so, I mean, I can, luckily I can buy an EBR rotor, um, or a, a rotor for an EBR, I should say. Um, I think EBCs, you know, they don't have the holes in them. And if you look at the EBR compared to the old Buell, um, they got rid of all the holes. They did the gas slots different to help get rid of the warping problem. You know, what is crazy too, is that EBR is still, I mean, I know Eric Buell doesn't own it anymore, but they're still making bikes in wherever the hell they moved to. Uh, yeah. forget where exactly they moved to, but the, whoever took it over from receivership is still making EBRs and they bought all his tooling and they're still making all that shit. Um, I didn't think of this and I've never really thought about it before, but I, cause I've never tested it obviously, but I have a theory that also sort of like a front wheel drive car over, uh, understeers pretty bad and a rear wheel drive one oversteers because you're steering with the rear end in a rear wheel drive car and a front mm-hmm. wheel drive car, you're turning and it still wants to go, <laughs> keep going straight. It doesn't, it wants to understeer because it's trying to also turn, but all the weights up there. I, I wonder if his ZTLs, since all the weight was out there around the outside of the wheel, if it was almost harder to turn because it was like moving a, a bigger gyroscope than moving something that's towards yeah. central. That's spinning I centrally. Toward the I don't know if that relates to a front and rear wheel drive car, but you're right. It does change your gyroscope, but his thing was because you only have one rotor, it's, it, it comes out the same, you know, yeah. those are one of those that that's minimal. You know, if you, if you pack 10 pounds on the outside of that thing, yeah. Yeah. You would notice it, but yeah. You know, it, it's well, pretty minimal, I think, for that. It just it had some issues, but like I think the topic we started on um, was it's just that they were a gimmicky thing, and yes, it had some benefits, but it also had some negatives. And it's like, why not just make shit the way it works? And I get it with Buell because if we just made shit the way it works, we'd never have new, better shit. Right. Exactly. But, so I don't know, you know, I'm kind of torn between like both of those, you know, the whole like innovator die type thing. Yeah. I, I yes, this is funny. Speaking of Buells, I was just talking to some coworkers today that kind of don't know much about motorbikes, but they, they were like, Buell, wasn't that the one that had the fuel in the frame and something else like the oil bag was the, the a arm. And I was like, yeah, basically. Yeah. The, you guys well, and, and that, you know, that's a super cool concept. And if you look at a lot of modern bikes, how many bikes is the fuel tank not the fuel tank anymore? Well, a lot of them. That so, what, what we would consider the fuel tank is like the airbox now. And like yeah, or like some the of them it's a helmet it. compartment. You know, it's there storage. They've moved the trunk because now they've got the fuel down lower, kind of under the seat. Yeah. So, you know, I don't uh, – that to me is one – and. And that's something like your frame and your swing arm are going to be specific to that bike, right? Your front wheel doesn't have to be, you know, your brake pads don't have to be type thing. So that's kind of my thing with the rotor. Um, but so I don't what know. Was, that's <clears throat> what was that Honda? There's a Honda. I don't think it was the XR650, but it, there was some Honda that had maybe it was the XR650 that the frame was also the oil tank. Was that the XR650? Oh, I don't. Uh, I think it was an old something Honda. Yeah. Like the backbone, it kind of had an oil bag, like a Harley in a way. And it had a little oil tank in the backbone. You know what? No, this one, this one had like a dipstick in the top of the frame, right in front of the fuel tank. Yeah. And then a a pet, pet cock at the bottom of the frame. Yeah. Um, I think it was the XR650L. I'll have to look. It might've been because I think I've seen some of that on flat trackers. 
Yeah. And it's like shit like that. They, you know, it's not new, but it was just harder then than it was like for Buell's thing. I think his stuff was probably like a hydro formed or something. So it was nice and easy to make all that great stuff uh, doable. Where back in the day, they had to engineer it and like physically uh, <laughs> like bend it and stamp it. So, like, nah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, also on this week's notes, I wanted to say uh, thanks to our patrons. I was in there yakking on Discord with Phil, who was asking me about changing the stuff on his R6. Let me see what I told him. First off, I didn't tell him how to take the tire off correctly, which if you're smart, you'll probably use like, you know, some tire levers and some lube. If you do it, if you want the junkie turdman quick and fast way, here's what you do you get a cutoff wheel or even a circular saw, and uh, you cut right through the tire. You don't mess with spooning the old tire off, you cut right through. And if you nick your wheel, no big deal. You know, you're just don't you can cut halfway through your tire or your wheel, and then once you get past the bead, then your hose. But as long as you just cut a little bit into your wheel, you're good, and then just peel that tire right off like a, like a donut, right. Mm-hmm. So none of this uh, spooning it off, sweating, you know, protecting your wheel. You know, your wheels come and go. You're probably going to want to get new wheels on that thing anyway. But he's got a really pretty – oh, no, it's not a – it's a CBR, it looks like, by those colors. Yeah, it's the red, white, and blue CBR from a few years ago. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's got some nice-looking wheels and tires. But, dude, just take a hacksaw, run right through that tire, and then a couple inches into your rim – you're not going to hurt anything, right? And then just uh, get some bolt cutters and cut the <laughs> cut the rest of the way through the tire. Uh, don't don't sweat. I mean, it's going to be hot in Colorado soon, so don't sweat this like trying to lever it off and putting those little plastic covers on your wheels to protect them. The less you care about it, the less you're going to get hurt when you smash into a curb and ru- it ruins everything anyway. So um, that's one way to do it. Um, I really the real way I told him to do it was to. Um, you know, if you get if you get uh, frustrated, squirt a bunch of soapy water on there, but then don't let the soap dry because then that sucks. Then it gets sticky, right? But squirt a bunch of soapy water on there, and while you're trying to pry the other one off and you're still sweating because it's still hard as a mofo, throw your other tire out in the sun to let it warm up a little bit. And I've I've heard people say that that doesn't really help, but if it's a placebo and it mentally helps you, then it helps you in some way, right? Um, I don't know really how much it quote softens a tire though to throw it out in the sun to be honest so that could just be a bunch of bs but hey it's worth uh, it uh, you know that's one of those like hokey things but i've left them in the back of my truck all day and then went in and put them on do they go on like butter it, so there you it does, go it does make a difference you know if it's a yeah. nice hot sunny california day and your tire is almost hot enough you can barely touch it they go on they're so much more flexible yeah. And it, it, it does help to soap it up too sometimes before you break your bead. But I told him to be careful because if you have soapy hands and you're trying to press down on that tire and your hand slips and you smack, you do what I call the jacker cracker, <laughs> which is where you hit your jack off machine into the ground at 100 miles an hour, you're liable to break some precious material. And uh, yep. you, won't, you won't be spending alone time with yourself anytime soon if you break that Right hand for most of us, left hand for some others. But yeah, be careful that your hand doesn't slip off and uh, smash into the ground at high speed. And also, if you have spoked wheels, 
put it on something because you don't want to be smashing your, like Wiggins was talking about sideways force. You don't want to be just smashing the wheel against the ground, trying to get a tire to come off. They make these really nice tire stands to do this stuff on. But if you don't have it, just a lot of get people something. take a little trash can and put like yeah. rubber. There you go. It. Cause the moto guys all change them by hand pretty quick. Yeah. 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 And a lot of times I've seen them where they change it on the bike stand and they just stick like, they just have like a spare axle or some shit and they just run it through like a piece of wood and slap it on there. So it doesn't wobble around or something like that. You yeah. can, you can do yeah. it really cheaply. Yeah. Um, from his picture that he sent me, he's got a little wheel stand with a little lever on it that breaks the bead. So he's, he looks like he's set. He just needs to do the, uh, the old soapy water. When I worked at a body shop. Also, the, soapy water is a bad idea. It, uh-huh. uh, soapy water, soap, dish soap corrodes aluminum. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what I actually prefer, although it's kind of messy, but it's really not bad is a WD-40, man. Squirt a little WD-40 on the on the bead, slide the tire on, and then wipe it all off when you're done, clean yourself up, and you're good to go. Uh, right. I forget if, if WD-40, I don't think it's uh, petroleum, right? So it won't rot the rubber either. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I forget I've never what had a problem is. with it. But, and honestly, I've never had a problem with dish soap um, kind of you know, corroding them either. But yeah, maybe enough. I mean, maybe maybe the old dish soap from the '90s, which had like fucking uh, aluminum well, and med alloys in the, it. A lot of the wheels are powder coated or painted too. Yeah. Um, you know what? Even the silvers usually have an anodize on them. So yeah. it, you know that's part of it too. But, I bet you that there is some sort of dish soap though that has like some sort of oxide in it. And it and it does galvanic corrosion. I bet it has like some sort of aluminide brahma, uh, aluminum bromide or something bromide in it that does like some sort of galvanic corrosion, like putting, you know, two types of metals against each other that don't get along. But yeah, Dawn I know is just l- literally um, uh, glycerin and something else. I think that sh- that should be fine. But. Yeah, I don't know either. I've never, I've done it dry before and it's a pain in the ass. Um, hey, yeah, wheels are yeah. like sex. Lube them up and they go on and off real yeah. easy. Uh, but yeah, so that's, thanks for, Phil for checking in. And uh, here, here was another suggestion I have. My valve caps on Spamala have a little valve core tool in the fucking cap for this. You take the stem, you know, the, the, valve stem cap off and and in the top of the valve stem cap is a little little tool so you just flip the cap upside down and you can screw your valve core out with it and that way you don't have to sit there and hold down the little schrader valve yeah those right? are just, uh, those are the best those are hard caps to find man yeah it just pops the core right out and yeah just air shoots right out of there so what you want to do is you want to take a bunch of cheese whiz and squirt it back into the hole when you're about to fill it up so the next guy that buys the bike off of you has when they let the air out of the tire, oh, it just smells like disgusting, hot death coming. Out of I there. mean, I mean, the air out of a tire smells pretty darn bad, anyway. <laughs> Imagine like rancid <laughs> cheese coming. Shoot, when they undo the valve core, just rotten cheese shoots out. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! Uh, and by the way, tire techs hate when you like put fix a flat. Not that you do it do it on a bike. Usually, you plug a bike tire, but. Like when you do that crap on a car, they hate like fix a flat and slime oh, and all that stuff. It's kind it's of not, the same like thing. Like it's it, just a yeah. mess taking it's it totally out. Yeah. I think it's hard on the aluminum and it's a total mess. 
And it stinks. It really stinks. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, dude, for sending in your suggestions. And anybody else that wants to join, um, our friends, artists, writers, and throttle junkies group is uh, free uh, for everybody. It's it's not the uh, patron-only chat, but it is uh, available to everybody right now. And um, we're not going to do... We're not going to do our cool patron stuff that we do for them. Um, but but if you do want to chat, so far Lady B from New Zealand has been in there and uh, Phil. <laughs> and I think that's about it. So if you want to join us on our Discord server for the public right now, go hit us up over there. Leave some shows, show suggestions. Do whatever you want to do over there. Um, but yeah, like it'd be fun to talk to people. I have I have been extremely busy at work the last uh i'm surprised i can talk to you right now wiggins i had the worst headache for like the last two days this morning i actually had another one well it was continuing from last night and i almost had to just call into work i was like dude i don't think i could do this i made it to our first break i went in and took three advils and (laughs) and did that foam foam roller shit on my neck and my back cracked in about 12 places and i felt better and then by the time I was like, yeah, this actually felt my neck doesn't hurt as bad because my neck is what was, I think my muscles is was what giving me a headache the past yeah. couple of days. I've been drinking water like crazy. So I know it wasn't dehydration, but it felt like one of those like dehydration migraines. So this morning, it, my, and my whole back and neck and everything was so tense and my head was just pounding. So I, like I said, I hit the foam roller and my back cracked a bunch and it loosened it up and made my headache ease enough for the three Advils to kick in right away, you know, <laughs> ten, 10 minutes later. And I've been good all day since. So I'm like, yes, <laughs> but yeah, dude, for the last time yesterday, I was like, yeah, it's hard. Like when you're sitting at a, com- well, and you did it before anyway, but when you sit at a computer all day, it's really hard on this. Like, yeah, kind of hard on your body. Dude, listen, when I went from a body shop, I was not in the best shape because we drank beer, smoked cigarettes, and ate burritos all fucking day. Uh, <laughs> when we weren't working, right? When we weren't working on the cars and shit. But um, the thing is, is that I was walking around all day and lifting shit, and we were tearing cars apart. And I was, I was a parts guy, so I was delivering parts to all the techs and helping them take parts of car, cars apart and shit. Once I got working where I work now, and I was sitting in a fucking cube, my back hurt, my fucking hips hurt. Like I was like is this why they call the secretary spread is my ass like literally like it's like pushing my, my bones apart sitting in this fucking chair. Cause all the weight humans weren't made to sit all day, you know, evolution from an evolutionary standpoint. And so dude, sitting down was more taxing on my body for eight hours a day than it was walking around in the shop and like lifting shit and like, you know, it was like even heavy shit, like sitting down was harder and lifting fucking truck beds off of trucks, you know, like, oh shit, my my back, my neck, my eyes, you know, you're staring at a computer screen all day. So yeah, it literally was different. And so these last, um, this is my third week of it, but for the last two weeks, and then this is uh, week three. So I guess the last three weeks, I've been talking almost nonstop for eight hours a day. And... Um, training people. I'm training like uh, between four and six people. And so I'm explaining them how to do our procedures and all that stuff. And it's like eight hours a day of doing this. And they're like, how long does it take to do what you do? And I was like, about three or four months 
um, to get it down. <laughs> and then like another two before we can actually like send you out live into the field. So, uh, I prepared to talk for like three more months. And I was like, no, I felt like I've been screaming at a rock concert. And like yeah. this weekend I wasn't saying anything. My wife's like, what's up? And I was like, I'm just recovering, babe. Like I can barely speak. I don't know how I'm going to do a podcast with Wiggins. That's part of the reason why we didn't have a show last week. You and I sat down with the Nokomoto guys and I was just like, I can't talk any fucking more this week. Like I'm yeah. my throat. Yeah. So I don't know how much longer that's going to go on actually. So I'm training, I'm giving them my whole life of, of work of what I've ever done that I had to learn. That's taken me like, you know, 15 years to learn. Uh, and I'm cramming it down their throats in three weeks. And I'm like, you guys have the power now. Use it wisely. <laughs> but they're still going to have questions. I, I realize that there's no way to give 15 years of uh, knowledge in three weeks and have it stick. So having right. said that, um, I imagine that they still won't go start start doing like uh, regular regular actual work. They'll still be practicing and training for quite a while. Not, that means I'll be talking uh. like nonstop all day for I don't know how many more weeks. So we'll ah. see. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why last week I was like, dude, I'm not doing a show. Like I'm fucking beat. And that goes to what we were talking about earlier where, um, I thought I'd have so much time once this shit happened, uh, the coronavirus shit specifically. And instead it's turned out to be the other way around where like, I'm fucking beat. And I'm, I just have been more busy not doing my own work because I've been teaching other people. And so I haven't touched my own work. And like this month I was so scared that I wasn't going to have enough publications put out. Right. I was like, Oh my God. And my boss was like, listen, just don't worry about it. And I was like, no, people need this. Well, and it's hard. I think, you know, for you, like you've worked from home and you have like this kind of thing going and now these other people are, and they're kind of, um, like they're expecting different things out of you. And it's like, wait a minute. I don't know. Yeah. That's, it's kind of like when you first said something that I got, uh, that's kind of like the idea I got, like now that they're all home all day, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> let's have Larry do this and this and this. And you're like, wait a minute, I have eight hours worth of work or more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing too, is that like, we're all, I feel my, my wife is really feeling this um, school thing right now, like not being at school. And she's like, you know what? It takes me longer to actually do a lesson because I have to go and make sure the kids can access it. Where in the classroom, I just have to have them show up. You know what I'm saying? Like show up and we'll, I can teach you and I can point at the, at the walls, you know, at the maps on the walls and the pictures here and there. We can read and all this great stuff. And her lesson plannings went from planning a lesson to now planning a lesson and then having to digitize everything so that the um, the kids have access to the resources, right? Where before, her biggest thing was like making a copy on the, fo- on the photocopier so they have something to write, you know, so they have a form to fill in. And now she's like, no, now I got to do all this digitally. Every single thing I say, I have to make it digital so they can. And so I feel the same way. I'm like, dude, I have to teach these people what I, what I do at work. And I also have to be able to show them. And I was like, oh, shit. So I had to have our IT guys add a bunch of the stuff that I use on uh, my computer to make it so they can see it. Because they can't see what's on my computer unless I like have to screen share with them and go through our little network to get you know 
long story short, like there was a bunch of technical uh, hurdles I had to jump through to be able to even share my screens, all of my screens with them so they could see what I do. And I was like, dude, so this, this is weird. And, and they're half of them are like not even in, well, most of them aren't even in California. So I was like, oh, this is another, we got to like talk across crappy phone lines and like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. not as easy as, as it, it seems like, yeah, everyone's working from home. Woo. And actually I think people are like, yeah, I'd kind of like to get out once in a while and see people in the office, you know, see coworkers. But mm. are you guys going back to, cause I know your job kind of depends on making those person to person contacts. Are you guys going back as soon as possible or do you have any plans? Uh, the next two weeks we have the schedule to stay at home again right yeah. now. So I went to a shop last Friday. I actually went to a shop yesterday. I went to a shop today, but I only went to one each day. And it was all on their request. Oh, my wife would be so mad at you. <laughs> Why? No, she's just like, people aren't staying home. And I was like, babe, there's there's like, it's not like the whole world can stay home right now. Like, so, people still have to do stuff. Right. So our job is considered essential because a lot of our, a lot of manufacturing is in um, aerospace and government contracts and you know they're not letting that stuff go so and you know oh, everyone, half, half of those guys are turning to medical equipment right now too right well and there's a lot of medical manufacturing too so yeah i mean that's definitely part of it um but so we have that which is cool but you know all the shops i've been in for the most part require mask um you know, I left the one a day and the guy had like a big squirt bottle full of uh, like isopropic alcohol. He's like, oh, you want some alcohol? And I was like, actually, I have hand sanitizer right here in my like little backpack. Yeah. So, you know, people are being cautious. They're doing those things. So I get it, you know. Um, so, yeah, for us, it's by request only. So if I have a customer request that I can go. Um, so it's kind of nice. I mean, that's definitely a part of it. You know, I'm not shaking people's hand, which if you're, you know, to me, if you're in manufacturing and you're an adult, well, not even if you're in manufacturing, if you're an adult male, um, which is sexist, if you're an adult at all, you greet people by shaking their fucking hand. That's what humans do. So that's kind of weird. Um, but, you're not doing that foot tappy thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. Like, yeah, today it was funny. It was like this old dude and we're fist bumping and um, – <laughs> Uh, yesterday was actually someone I knew because it was, it was actually Vance and Hines. So we were like elbow bumping or whatever it was. But yeah, it's, I don't know, man. We're making it work, but trying to stay safe. Um, we got a couple yeah. more weeks. And my companies, luckily they're big enough. And see, we're still getting orders. Like orders are down for sure, but there's still enough of them to sustain all of us, um, which is awesome. And I don't know. It's... They're trying to they, they are trying to be safe, man. I was surprised. I mean, we were told to stay at home way before a lot of people, way before it was mandatory. You know, I mean, yeah. by the way, it's like a week or two, right? But mm -hmm. you know, I stayed at home the same first day my wife stayed at home was the same first day I stayed at home. So and she's at a school. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it is what it is, but that's kind of the deal I'm doing with right now. Yeah. You know, if if a shop needs and I've had some shops that are the programmers are working from home. I've had some like Vance and Hines was closed for a couple of weeks and then just reopened and they've been bringing people back like 50 people at a time. And when I pulled Guys. in, they made sure I had a mask. They checked my temperature on my forehead. 
they made sure who I was meeting, which V&H never really cared about that. Um, so, you know, they were a little stricter, but uh, I don't know. We're all kind of adjusting and making it work, you know? But yeah, I just heard is, that on, on Moto Twins this week that Vance and Hines had opened up like Indiana and California. Yeah, I, I mean, think about it this way too. Like the stimulus packet's all well and great. You know, if you had a family of four like you do, right? So it was 1200 1200 500 and $500. So you got $3,400. For a lot of people in a lot of parts of this country, you could cover your mortgage for two or three months. You could cover your grocery bill. Um, and, and that's it. You could stay home. You could, you could do that. So I'm a family of three, but we'll say it was forward. It was $3,400. That's my rent for one month. Yeah, I know. Uh, (laughs) And no no car payment, no groceries. Eight or 900 bucks less over. Yeah. And you know, everyone's got car payment type stuff, but, um, I think it's going to inspire more people to move to cheaper places actually. Yeah, Although yeah. I do, I do have to say that it hasn't stayed out of the rural areas because shortly, very shortly after um, uh, we got it here, I called my grandma to make sure everything was cool there, and she's like, "No, like we, uh, it's in town here, and the town yeah. where I was born only has fucking like five or six thousand people in it, you know." Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, dang!" So it spread to rural shit too. Oh yeah. I mean, part of that problem, you know, the problem here is we're dense, right? And I wanted to say, like, there's a lot of stupid people in the rural areas, which is true. There's also a lot of stupid people here. You know, I was yeah. somewhere and the, this guy's like, oh, yeah, I'm having people over later. And I'm like, what? Like, I mean, yeah. don't, don't get me wrong. I'm also the school of, like, thought that um, – if you do it safe, you're good. No, <laughs> you're fine. Your government shouldn't be telling you to stay like without enacting law. They can't do that. And and yeah. you know, people are, you know, police are arresting preachers for having church in their parking lot. Now, don't get me wrong, churches should be closed. Um, you, you know, but they're arresting preachers for trying to hold a church sermon in their parking lot so people would stay in their cars. Um, you know, they're arresting people for getting on public transportation without mask. Um, I saw them, they were arresting like this lady who had a dog grooming service, right? And she opened and she wasn't supposed to. And it's like, yeah, you're not supposed to. But can you, like, where is there a law that says you can't do that? You know, and again, martial law is a big deal. And I know why they don't want to enact that. But I, I, it's just... It's a shady thing. And honestly, what um, Virginia did – so remember a couple months ago when there was big protest in Virginia about some gun laws they were trying to pass? And uh, all these people protested and they didn't pass them? It was maybe four or five months ago. might have been six months ago. Yeah. Okay. So now that everyone's supposed to stay at home, guess what they just pushed through and passed? Because they didn't have anyone protesting it. Oh. Because <laughs> you can't come out. <laughs> yeah. So sneaky, sneaky. I mean, oh, that's a bitch. Uh, yeah, that's some dirty, dirty, dirty politicians. Right. Hey, you know, and they're all uh, getting paid. You know, they're not like, yeah. hey guys, we'll put our paychecks on hold. Like, you know, it's and I get it. I saw something that really made a lot of sense. And this is something to really think about for a lot of people on 
you know, and I talk on the show a lot about buying made in USA products and what it does for the economy everywhere in our country, what it does for all of us, not just, you know, that one company. And it's, and I also say all the time that if we were to buy American, there would be more well-paying jobs in America and we would have more money to afford those made in America products. Right. The reason we don't is because greed is one, but like, you know, people don't have, the jobs don't pay the same as they used to. And, you know, I mean, think about it. Like in the seventies, what was a new car? Four or five grand. But people were yeah. still making 15, 20 bucks an hour. Well, now we're making 30 bucks an hour. Wait, in the seventies? My mom made a dollar 78 an hour in the seventies. Okay. Maybe it was late seventies. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Minimum wage was four twenty-five in the nineties. Yeah, but I mean, I guess you could. Most part of the country is only eight bucks an hour now. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have made. I'm not saying in the 70s there wasn't people making 20 bucks an hour. Okay, so all I know, so what I relate it to is, and it wasn't 20, it was actually less. uh, When my dad got out of high school, because he joined a union. Um, But I think when he finished his apprenticeship, I think he said he was around 20 bucks an hour. Wow. That would have been in the early 80s. That would have been massive money for the eighties. Yeah, but that would have been good. Good money. I think that's what. I, and he listens to the show, so when this comes out, he'll correct me. Maybe it wasn't that much, but so think about it. If minimum wage was four dollars an hour, and now it's eight dollars an hour, it's doubled. The price of homes has went up six, seven, eight, nine times. The price of cars has went up eight, nine times. The price of health insurance. I don't know how much that's went up. Way more. Yeah. The price of education is absolutely bonkers. You know, that's the difference that we're dealing with. But anyway, if we support that infrastructure and we buy American goods, one, we don't rely on other countries when this stuff happens. Um, and it kind of boosts the economy everywhere. And it, I don't know, it keeps those people going. I think I even yeah. forgot where we started this tangent at. So <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to go out and buy an Indian, a zero, and a Harley Davidson that's made in America. Well, think and about it. If you, all this Japanese shit I have. If the um, well, and you have to, or I'll, or or I'll get a Honda that's made in um, South Carolina or uh, Marysville. Yeah, they quit making the Goldwing there, but did they? They yeah, didn't quit the Marysville plant all the way, but and no, they make. I think they make a lot of cars. They do uh, still make a lot of cars there. A lot of have, Toyota. Well, here's the thing too: you can buy a Toyota pickup truck made in Texas or Indiana, depending which one you buy. Yeah, or a Subaru now. Excuse me. Let's not talk about cars. That's depressing to me. I but can't it's wait. Same. To I mean, the <laughs> you know you go buy a Subaru, the Outback, and the Legacy are made in Indiana. Um, Sweet. Or you can go buy a you know different models or different places, but a lot of them are Canada and Mexico. So it's like you buy an American car that's made somewhere else, or you buy a Japanese car that's made in the states. Yeah. So, well, at least it's, it's in North America too. To no, I don't. We. The only thing we need to do to support Mexico is add it as a state. <laughs> the state of Mexico. Hey, it's already got like 47 of its own states or 42. Uh, so we'll have, 90, we'll have 92 states. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Look at all the, well, the cartel there, dude. We like that is affecting our country so horribly. Sort of. Mexico is actually really fun. I would go back to Mexico if I could, because it's kind of like the, it's kind of like Arkansas. Well, we, people are people are scared of the people we there, but once you're of our country, it'd be what? great. It'd be great. Go to, what go to Mexico? Yeah, it'd be way safer. Oh, 
job, but then it'd just be full of McDonald's and Walmarts. It already is. I guarantee it's no, full of McDonald's in there. Yeah. It's pretty safe. I think the people are going to the, the cartels are in the Detroits of Mexico or the Chicago's or Baltimore's. I mean, yeah. every, every place has their Chicago, Baltimore, and Detroit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's it was, I listen to it was, too much Ed on Rogan. So Ed Calderon is like a, I don't know, he's it, a Mexican police officer. Yeah. Oh, no, dude. The Mexican police, because they're in the towns where well, shit, he was right? one of them that was like a good guy. Now he deals with the Mexican government trying to fix the cartel problems. And he's just like corrupt. Yeah. Men. And, you know, like when they killed all those Mormons, like he kind of explained that and what's going on. And I believe the reason. Well, they saw, they saw a bunch of black suburbans, right? And they fucking opened fire. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Dude. yeah. I, don't I don't think this, I don't think the Mormons thought that went through very good. But I know that it, they saw black suburbans and they didn't think it was, they didn't know it was Mormons. They're well, like, oh shit. Of, part of the issue with that area is it's a big um, deposit for lithium. Yeah. So China's trying to come in and mine it. Um, and of course, the cartel wants to control it. So that's a lot of the thing that like people don't realize about that is I guess there's a big lithium deposit. So, you know, the cartel's not dumb, dude. They're into everything. Sex They're into batteries now, man. Yeah, you think it's cocaine, but it's actually like uh, well, here's the iPhones. Thing. Well, here's the thing with the cartels is they're like the Kennedys, right? They started with drugs, and then they invested that money wisely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of super legit businesses owned by cartel families. Oh, for sure. Like the, the Kennedys got rich off the bootlegging, right? I'm sure they probably did. That's the... You know, I don't know how official, but that's the story I've heard about that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I have no idea. I have uh, all those families can go eat double dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want fucking, I want a moto a motocrosser to become president and make some sort of legacy in this fucking country for for once, dude. Um, I- so return it to, re- return it to fun. Even though Teddy Roosevelt was a total douchebag and a and a kind of an a- an asshole and a little bit of a failure, at least he was a fucking a rough rider, right? I mean, at least he was like a a wannabe cowboy slash a little bit of a hooligan. <laughs> so he was a pretty shitty. Like I don't think his campaign the rough riders I think were a joke, but he he did like uh, the outdoors and he did like. Doing wild yeah. shit. He so made, I'm done he's with the that. one that did all the national parks, right? That was Roosevelt, Teddy. Yeah, because there's a couple of Roosevelts, but right, yeah. and that's who the teddy bear is named after. Yeah, because he was into stuffed animals or stuffed bears or something, right? He's a, he was a furry. Yeah, he, yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. That could that's where well. that's where furries came from. <laughs> <laughs> Roosevelt. Hell yeah, Furry Roosevelt. That's a good name for a blues singer. I'm Furry Roosevelt. There's a bunch of uh, furry. This and free that free Roosevelt would be a good one. Well, Wiggs, listen, dude, it's fucking. We've been yakking for an hour, and I don't know if my voice can hold out for. I don't even know if we yakked about anything worth anything. We did. Okay. We did. My we voice definitely has did. Been struggling, dude, because going to like the shops for a couple of days, like I'm talking to customers through a mask, then through a mask, talking over machines yeah. through a mask, like so I'm like yelling in this thing, and my like throat's been bothering me a little bit. I'm right. Like, I'm not. And I'm not used to it, right? Yeah. We haven't been doing the show, so I haven't been yelling at the microphone. We haven't, uh, <laughs> yeah. I haven't been going to work every day talking to people, so I don't know. 
Answer me this. One one question before you go, though. In the summer in Indiana, well, I don't know if you lived in the city or in the woods like I did, but in Arkansas, say, where were you? It gets sweaty balls, humid. It gets sweaty balls, and the humidity, at least where I lived in Arkansas, is so fucking bad, and we lived in the woods, so you had to yell over every single woodland creature that came out at night. Oh, yeah. So in the evenings, when it was nice and thick humidity, and I could barely breathe as it was because it was so fucking, it was like talking through water, basically. Uh, and all the bugs were so fucking loud, and my dad and I would have to have a conversation. We'd literally have to scream through the air at each other, three <laughs> feet apart, right? So we were always yelling because well, the humidity should make it um, sound travel better, right? Like underwater. No, I think no, I think sound. I don't know if it travels as clearly through water as it does. I mean, it might travel the same distance, but I don't think it uh, travels as easily. That's way way too scientific for someone talking how loud you have to talk in Arkansas, you know? (laughs) Yeah. People from Arkansas shouldn't be able to think about things like this. I just remember in the summertime, my voice focus on being talk and and maybe read a little. Yeah. I was listening to this podcast the other day called Five Dirty Bikers and this dude came on and I was like, holy shit, he's got an Arkansas accent. And he's like, and sure enough, they were, they're from like Northern Arkansas somewhere. And I was like, you, you can just tell, they just sound like they got a box of chocolates in their mouth the whole yeah. time. And dude, we watched that, uh, <laughs> the Tiger King. Right. And my wife was like, I can't believe, and I go, I can totally believe I go, yeah. yeah. I go, dude, I grew up around so many people like that. And if they would have had tigers, you know, like. Fuck yeah. yeah Those I guys are from out. Oklahoma too. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, the thing is, I go, there's more people like that in this world than not. Like, that's what right. I think a lot of people didn't realize about that show is there's a lot of people in this world like that that are totally just hillbilly. Hey, rest of the world, get a map of, of the United States, the 48 contiguous United States, and just draw a big circle right around the middle of it. And that's that's everybody that's Tiger King. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, fucking, we've been yakking for a bit, so I'm going to cut you loose, but it's been good. It's been good to Sounds talk to somebody. Good. I know, right? I hope someone yeah. listens to us, but I don't know that either. I hope so too. I know. (laughs) You know what? I did clean out the garage. I vacuumed everything and I saw you were vacuuming inside of your tires out or something. Fuck yeah. I took all the tires off all my bikes and vacuumed them. And luckily I didn't do that saw thing that I said to do or else I wouldn't have been able to put them back on very effectively. But yeah, well, you just yeah. do a little duct tape and bailing wire. You could have hooked them back up. What was I thinking? I was I pissed out. I should have thought of that. But yeah, I've been cleaning it up in here a little bit, and because it was getting pretty without a reason to clean it up, since nobody's coming over, I was just piling shit here and there. And I've been working on. I'm getting pretty far into this fiberglass project that I'm working on, and so um, yeah, it was getting a little messy with shit strewn about. So I was like, I'm going to clean it up in here. So yeah, next time you come over, maybe you'll be impressed. Whenever that may be. But um, all right, for reals this time, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop recording this baby and uh, good. bag this thing up. Everyone, thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was. Yeah, good. I think it was.
right, that has been our show. Uh, if you want to contact us, give us a call, 740-563-2858. That's Creative Writing's Harry Hotline. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, other than calling us, you can write us an email at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page and just click the little email button and it'll pop up your email, your whatever you have configured on your smartphone or computer. Um, I would also like to say that you could follow us on Twitter at creative underscore writer. Uh, and on Instagram and Facebook, we are Creative Writing Podcast. Uh, we haven't been crazy active on all that stuff. It has been hairy. Um, I'd like to give you a Bosa Soku update maybe next week. I'd like to give you a special project uh, update next week of what I'm working on. But right now, we got to get out of here. It's getting, uh, we're, we're, we're going on two and a half hours. So let's get out of here. Uh, please write us an email if you can help Ray from earlier in the show with this uh, tiger cam chain uh, noise please send the email in and uh yeah we'll talk to you talk to you later let's keep in touch we miss you guys check us out also on discord friends artists writers throttle junkies we should have a link on our facebook page to reach us there and uh just check us out on discord creative writing all right bye